Akadosh Baruku, please send Mashiach now. May we merit his return. Amen. And may it be your will, Hashem, my God, that a mishap not come about through me, and may I not stumble in a matter of law and cause my colleague to rejoice over me. And may I not say regarding something which is to me that is to whore, and not regard something which is to whore that it is to me. And may I not, and may my colleagues not stumble in a matter of law, and I rejoice over them. For Hashem grants wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding of God. Unveil my eyes that I may perceive wonders from your Torah. Amen. Amen. Well, everyone, welcome to the rumination for Parsha Hukat. We are playing catch up. Uh, so sorry we missed you last week, but uh, the Torah is infinite. It continues and we shall continue with the help of Hashem. So without further ado, let's get into the rumination. Situated here. Okay, all set up, so now we can get into Rumination 37. Why does scripture categorize the commandments? So that you may do all that Hashem has commanded you. Interesting that they put it that way, because you would think, what does categorizing the mitzvot have to do with us actually fulfilling them? Which, as we're about to find out, uh, that's been used as a pretext to not fulfill them. This is very common in evangelical theology. Unfortunately, um, because some theologies or teach the categorization of the commandments in order to explain one or more categories is no longer valid. Those categories normally go like this. 
moral, still in effect, civil, only in effect where governments adopt them. That one just doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> uh, ritual, not in effect, replaced with, quote unquote, the law of Christ. There's obvious problems there. The first of which, and chief among them, is the fact that the Torah is eternal. Right. Again, it's the revelation of Hashem, of his righteousness, of his holiness. The unity of his purpose. These so-called categorizations, which you don't find these categorizations in the Torah at all. So this really does contradict. It also draws one away from the Torah and to doctrines of men. Because after all, whose standard are we advocating here? Right. It's not our own. If it's if it's our own, it would be subjective. And as I said in a previous podcast, you shouldn't listen to me if I'm spouting out that kind of thing. Right. It's interesting too because the Or Hashem among many commentators speak that when the Torah was spoken as it was given, that it was all spoken at once, all 613 mitzvot, literally the Anoki of Exodus chapter 20. So when we look at the fact that the Torah itself wasn't even categorized and to get even more Kabbalistic, we learned that all of the Torah is the 600,000 letters in disarray before Hashem, which is all one name of Hashem as brought down by the Messiah text and the Zohar as well. So when you look at categorizing the Torah and taking away parts of it and um, basically saying we don't have to do them anymore, you're nullifying the name of Hashem and you're also dividing up that which Hashem gave all as one, which you may think to yourself, uh, well, what about the things that we don't do today? Like uh, we don't do Corbinote in the temple. Um, we don't have a lot of the land mitzvot that we can do, namely like the Jubilee uh, that we can fulfill these days. And you would think, well, aren't we dividing up the Torah? Well, the thing is, what do we do that fulfills mitzvot that we cannot currently physically do? We read them. So when you study the Torah, especially those commandments that we can't do, it's considered as if we have fulfilled them. For instance, we recite the Korbanot for the daily offerings. It's as if we're bringing those offerings. So those are only in effect as a temporal thing because we cannot currently do them because we don't have a temple. But once we get a temple, once we get the land uh, in full possession and Sanhedrin and things like that, we'll continue with the mitzvot. So it's just a really interesting uh, perspective when you get away from the Jewish thought and the understanding of what the sages have granted us through the commentary. Yeah, I just thought of something. Uh, this is like militaristic is when you 
get tasked to like say fly a mission this let's use the sr-71 as an example the pilots are briefed they chart their course where they're going to go the refueling points what they're going to photograph all this is in a in a briefing before the flight The Torah is basically a briefing for us so we know which way we're going. Wow. To do, to, to do away with that is to leave yourself without a sense of spiritual direction. This is how essential the Torah really is. And denigrating it does not change that fact either. Wow. So basically, you just expounded on Yeshua's words when he says, I am the way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so that's really neat. Oh, I'm not come to abolish the Torah. I've come to fulfill it. That doesn't mean doing away with. It means I've come to show you what obedience to the Torah looks like. That you may be filled with proper interpretation meaning he defaults to the rabbis to the sages Hmm. which is another reason why the gospels are so misunderstood theologians can't do anything with yeshua's words they know they can't so what do they do they go immediately to paul thinking that he speaks against the torah wow isn't it crazy that he's the only one that uh they use him for yeah precisely. they never use they never use kepha to nullify torah they never use yaakov goodness for doing that because <laughs> if you use yaakov you're gonna be like oh snap i think we're supposed to do it <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know what martin luther said about yaakov's letter he said what it was that? a bunch of straw I'm like, all because it shoots holes in his theology. Pretty powerful straws. <laughs> say there are a lot more than straw. <laughs> yeah. The flaming sword. <laughs> Get you some. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, um, So we have these categorizations that the theologians use, moral, civil, ritual. Both supersessionist, replacement theology, and dispensationalists borrow from this theological monstrosity. That's exactly what it is. Nothing more than a monstrosity. Monstrosity. (laughs) Uh, Some messianics also use it. I've seen it myself. An attempt to recast it in terms of jurisdictions. This is another one I've seen people use. As an example, they might say that commandment is not for this jurisdiction because we're under the jurisdiction of Messiah. Make no mistake about it, whatever the supposed theological reason, it is an undulterated hypocrisy to teach against the literal obedience to biblical 
commandments and then claim that somehow they still apply in some deep theological sense. <laughs> These groups use, and I place emphasis on this, man-made interpretive rules to undo the commandments of the Almighty and all the while mocking Jews for following man-made rules. It's plain hypocrisy. Yeah, it it's really crazy because we're under the jurisdiction of Messiah, right? Like, say that's the statement. <laughs> um, this is a reason why Yeshua is rejected as the Mashiach by a great number of Yiddishkeit. Because if you're saying that you have a Messiah who takes away the yoke of Torah, which, by the way, is called the yoke of heaven, the yoke of the kingdom, um, then basically what you have is a false messiah. Because if anyone comes, uh, Devarim 13, right? Deuteronomy 13. If anyone comes to you saying, you know, get rid of this Torah thing, get rid of the laws, you know, some of them, not, not all of them, just get rid of some of them. You end up being Balaam. You end up being, I don't know, Laban. Um, you know, people like that. Because one of the main things that's so crazy when you go back to the Torah portion of Vayetze, to be particular, uh, when Laban was holding on to Yaakov, he was keeping Yaakov in his house for his own benefit, which is the holding on to the essence of the Mashiach, if you will, because we know Yaakov and the Mashiach, they're likened to one another, you know, Lamb of God, face on the throne and things like that. But, um, yeah, he was holding on to that, but telling him, you know what, don't, don't go to Israel. Don't, don't fulfill all the mitzvot or anything, you know, just, just work for me. I'll keep changing things for you so that you have a rough time. You know, I'll, I'll be deceitful with you and things like that. And so it's just like this, this crazy picture, you know, of just like, what are we talking about? we're under the jurisdiction of the Messiah. So we don't have to do that anymore. Like that. I don't know what, what we should really be uh, taking away from that. <laughs> as far as that statement goes, because I mean, that literally is a thing that's taught and it. It's sad because it pulls people away from Hashem ultimately. And what's the rebuttal for that? Especially if you don't know, Torah, if you don't know anything about, you know, the history of, you know, the Jewish people. I would go back to um, Genesis 6-8. Nice. Arsha Noah, here we go. Actually, the Maftir for uh, Bey Rashid is where it's found. They know Akhmatsahen. Where's your jurisdiction there? Wow. That that's the narrative of redemption. Which began at the garden. Mm -hmm. So you really gonna tell me that oh 
that was a jurisdiction when it when it has a thread running all the way through the Torah, all the way through the Tanakh, and the gospel writers continue this narrative. The apostolic writers continue this narrative. You know, it's... Um, I think of the Hebrew word musar because it also means discipline. Nice. They lack the discipline to properly search the scriptures in a Jewish context, in Jewish understanding. You know, Talmudic. You know, but instead they speak evil of that which they don't understand. Peter says that in his letter. He wow. actually warns against it. And yet he's fiercely uh, contending with those who do that very thing. Because one of the things they struggled with or were fighting against is Gnosticism in the first century, starting right around the mid-first century, because John says, you know, there'll be many false messiahs. They're already in the world. They're, all, they're the ones who deny Mashiach. The ones that say, well, he hasn't come. You know, when he says that, um, behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called sons of God. Again, it's Mashiach's not a singularity. He, he needs to be seen in us. And this is something I'm coming to a realization that when he's seen in enough of us, then on a national level, and I'm speaking of Eretz Yisrael, he'll come. He's waiting for us to do something about it. Hashem's going, you know this. So now what are you going to do about it? Are you going to live my way? Or are you going to listen to those who are heretical in their teaching? Who depart from my Torah. And, and denigrate it all in the same breath. Because to denigrate the Torah is to denigrate Messiah. In the same breath. Along with Moshe as well. You know, anytime you think about denigrating Moshe, right? So, this is the one who spoke face to face with Hashem. He stopped Hashem from wiping out six million people. Remember that one time we made a golden calf and Hashem was like, all right, I'm starting over with Moses. <laughs> yep. Like the whole reason that didn't happen was because Moses was like, uh, can we pump the brakes? Whoa, 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 whoa. They're gonna speak bad about you, you know, especially Pharaoh who you took when you took them out of Egypt, you know. I would hate to see him reproach you. What, you brought them out here to destroy them? You yeah. Know? Which you know what that means, right? That yeah. means because of what he did, that's how we get the Messiah. Yeah. <laughs> so if Moses didn't do that, we would have never got the Messiah. Yeah, exactly. He's the Zadik. He puts his life on the line. I mean, which one of us would do that? Yeah. But then again, we're we weren't meant to live then. Right. <laughs> this, this is this is our time. This is where Hashem has put us. And so now we have our mission. I mean that we've been that we've been tasked with. 
and we just got to keep pressing on, you know? Yeah. Um, if we do that without the Torah, it's in vain. Exactly. Where are you flying to? In other words, where's your map and your compass? Yeah. You know, gas is limited. Can't fly forever. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, except for like an aircraft carrier, because they use nuclear power, those things can go forever, but still, you need a still need charts, still need compass, radar, all that wow. stuff. You know, the, the wow. Torah functions. The Torah functions on many levels, and those are just a few of them. You know, Peter says the, and even Shaul says the same thing. They're all in agreement. These things were written for your admonition that you would not repeat their mistakes. At least, I hope we won't. <laughs> I mean, yeah, um, we need help. Shem's got to help us. <laughs> That's, that's why we need Hashem. That's, that's why we got the Torah. I mean, how else can we live righteous, holy lives before him that are pleasing to him? See, who are you seeking to please? If we please men, then we become the enemy of Hashem. We stand in opposition to his will. But if we fulfill the will of Hashem, then we're in opposition to the world. You know, John points this out, too, in his letter. You know, right. love not the world, neither the things in the world, for the loss of the flesh, the pride of life is of the world, and the world passes passes away. It's transitorial. Um, the writer of Hebrews says concerning Moses that he rather suffered with his people than enjoy sin for a short time. Yeah, I'm looking at Hebrews chapter 12. And, you know, verse 14 says, pursue shalom with everyone, as well as kedusha, holiness, <clears throat> without which no one will see Hashem. And it's interesting, too, because... Sometimes this verse is said, you know, it's impossible to please God without this. So. That certainly is. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting because the Torah makes shalom between two parties, right? The Torah itself is called shalom. You know, and then, you know, the whole second tablet is all about shalom between person and person. So and uh, and actually Torah Wellsprings was bringing this down, saying that the letters on the second tablets are bigger than the letters on the first tablets. <clears throat> hinting at the fact that we need to pay more attention to our relationship <laughs> with each other. And then the Torah itself is the holiness, you know, it's the, it's the, the dividers, the, the bounds of what we do, the sanctifications that have to happen in our life, which is why we say what with every commandment, Asher Kiddushanu, who sanctifies us by his commandments. 
That's interesting because so. in the Ten Words or the Aseret HaDevarim, when we get to the fourth uh, mitzvah, you know, Sakor at the Yom HaShabbat, Kat Show, we're tasked to keep it holy. Wow. And, and to remember Rashi's comment on the word Sakor, it's an infinitive verb, so we're always conscious to keep it holy. Like the six remembrances? The six constant uh, reminders that we have to have? Yeah, uh, what are they? That's neat. Because it's, uh, it's the golden calf. It's Miriam. Let me see. I want to look up the rest of them. And oh, remember what Amalek did to you? Oh, okay, yeah. Right? Yeah. See here, got my Sidur pulled up. This is in the uh, morning prayer section under additional readings. <coughs> The Sheshet uh, Zakor, or yeah, Zikrut, Shesh, Zikrut, the six remembrances, verbatim, from the Sidur, remembrance of the Exodus, that's important, <laughs> we wouldn't even have the Torah if we didn't get out of Egypt, um, Remembrance of receiving the Torah at Mount Sinai and Amalek's attack, the golden calf, Miriam, and you guessed it, the Shabbat. So Exodus from Mitzrayim, Amalek, giving of the Torah, the golden calf, Miriam, and Shabbat. Which is funny because the whole thing about remembering what happened to Miriam is like, this is what happens when you throw away Moses. <laughs> you won't speak against them. This is what happens. <laughs> it's interesting. There's six because the six days of creation and man was created on the sixth day. Yep. And the last day, seventh, the seventh day, Shabbat. So I'm thinking Yom Shekalo Shabbat. Right. Um, so, hmm. of course, scripture itself does not use these man-made categories. And even though the theologians know that, they continue to hide from the people the real categories of the commandments. They hide them in translation traditions. And what's interesting is the word homiletic. It comes, it's, it's steeped in Greek mythology. Hermes, who stole fire from the gods. Really? Hermeneutics. Wow. Wow. The church is trying to steal fire from Hashem 
and I say, okay, go right ahead. See what happens. <laughs> wow, bro. That was okay. <laughs> I got deep real fast. Wow. You know, the thing is, he spoke from the midst of a burning bush to Moshe. But the bush was not consumed. So in spite of what the theologians do, the Torah is never consumed. It's never done away with, if you think about it in that respect. That's intense. Because this, this is the whole thing about the, uh, the statues that exist in the cathedrals about, uh, well, there's actually a, there's like a, a G, but was it when you do the historical arc, uh, what do they call it? Arc? No. The thing where they dig up fossils and all that kind of stuff, archaeological stuff. Okay. Okay. So like basically, um, the older uh, churches th- that have like the the different, uh, I guess, traditions of having different statues of the saints. So there's a whole account on this that the, those statues are basically different Roman or Greek gods that have been renamed with saint names. So in other words, mask the identity of the mythology that it's really sourced in. Yeah, camouflage. Yeah, which is kind of uh, disturbing on so many levels because these are the kind of things that are hidden away and aren't like necessarily outright shown to people who attend those establishments, you know. And with that being the source of the modern day church, you know, it's just kind of like, wow, you know, cause Xmas, the day that they talk about St. Nick, <laughs> you know, and it's just kind of like, yep. So which, which deity we're we talking about here, you know, and the son of God and it's, it's never really been high Elohim. So that's something, but Anyway, you know, you start to think about things like that, and it's just kind of like, where, where are we really going with this? And stolen fire? What? Um, yeah, Hermes stole fire from the Greek gods, and I'm just quoting the mythology. And if I remember correctly, he was punished and banished. Never to return to Olympus ever again. Hmm. But given the fact that Christian theology is so steeped in Neoplatonism and Plato's cave analogy, it's pretty much of no surprise, at least to those who are learned in history, who know the historicity. You know, the two, uh, the, the dichotomy between uh, Jewish history which is really fascinating if you get the Jewish Encyclopedia of History and you will see stuff in there that is not in the secular history books. Wow. They dis- See, that's the thing. They dispassionately record history, not the way 
others do it. You know, and this is why our education system tends to be lacking in this area. Because one thing I found out about Columbus that he got a lot of the Jews out of there because of the edict of Milan, King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella in 1492. Yep, definitely weren't taught that. Yeah, I mean, it's just... At least I wasn't. Yeah, I wasn't either when I was in school. This is the kind of sway that the Catholic Church, and the religion of the empire, endorsed by a Roman Caesar, instituted, foistered upon the unlearned, so much so that they forbade any uh, congregant from reading the scriptures for themselves. You just made me think of something. Keep going. I'm going to... You know, by papal de decree, you know, th like they say, they, they say Peter's the first pope, you know, and we know that's not true because, you know, Peter was one of the Talmudim of the master and he walked with him and he learned from him. You know, none of, none of the uh, disciples saw themselves as anything more than students of the master, just like all the students of the various rabbis in the Talmudic period. You know, they had their students, you know. So why is only Peter considered the first pope and not any of the other ones? Because technically that would mean that the other 11 are popes as well. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's the one I know about. I'm sure there's, I'm sure they've probably done it to others. I mean, they've created all these saints. They, I mean, they practically deify Mary, Miriam. Oh, yeah, there's that. You know, that's, that's idolatry, you know. So here's, here's what you made me think of. This comes from John chapter 19. Key verse, verse 15. But let's go back to 14 real quick, because remember this whole thing about the sixth hour that caused us to make the golden calf because we thought Moses was dead. Uh, well, it says it was the day of preparation for Passover about the sixth hour. And Pilate said to the Jews, here is your king. So remember the Midrash that's brought down about the the image that Hasatan showed all of Israel of Moses on a funeral bier. That, you know, he died. He's not going to come down the mountain. And everybody was like, yeah, we, he said he was going to be back on the 40th day. You know, all this kind of stuff. And so at the sixth hour, we see this image of Moses dead. And we're just like, okay, well, we need to replace him. We need a new, need a new, uh, image of Hashem to follow which is crazy because what is that really saying about Moses but anyway verse 15 this is crazy at this they shouted away with him away with him crucify him and he says shall I crucify your king Pilate asked we have no king but Caesar replied the chief priest like the Kohenim. 
the the craziness of this because you just said the caesar endorsed <laughs> things about uh christianity and the church like the history of that well it actually started with the jewish people saying yeah our king is caesar by the way so go ahead church set up your establishment let's go ahead and do that this is why we have to be careful with our words because you know we learn right that goodness comes in the world because of the jewish people and also bad things come into the world because of the jewish people Reminded of Shmuel when the in he, he was the last of the judges in Israel, but all the tribes came to him and said, "We want a earthly king to rule over us." And Shmuel reminded him, reminded them, "We are not like other nations, for Hashem is both our God and our King." Dude, because <laughs> what do you sure say? My kingdom is not of this world. In this world, if, my, if it were, what would his followers have done? They would have rescued him. They would have been like, "No, we're not crucified." He would have called down a legion of Malakim to stop these guys from taking him away to this kangaroo court at night. Yeah, it would have been a very different prep day. Oh, I don't, I don't know if we would be here right now. <laughs> just like this, this just giant crater just existing. In... <laughs> you know, and then Hashem speaks to Shmuel and says, don't be distressed by this thing. They mm. have not rejected you. They have rejected me from being king over them. And what does Yeshua say in Yochanan? You know, they have not rejected you. They have rejected me. Right. But if they rejected me, they certainly will reject you. If they hated me, they will certainly hate you. This is crazy. This is so, so crazy right now because this is literally what the rumination is talking about, accepting the earthly king and rejecting Hashem. Like the whole reason any of this theology exists is because Hashem was ultimately rejected. Like give us an earthly king. You know, it's... Um... The you know, this is what the Torah also teaches us. This is another narrative of the narrative of his kingship. This is the king that redeems his people out of Mitzrayim. And the other twisted part of this is that when they got to Sinai and he was giving the Torah to Moshe, they were down there making the golden calf out of the kasef, the money that was supposed to be for the ketubah, the dowry. And I'm like, are you thinking here? You just took something holy and you just desecrated it altogether. 
I mean, that is just crazy, you know? And, you know, in Judaism, it said that Hashem has never let us forget about the golden calf. That's true. Very, very true. But then again, uh, oh, yeah, we're a week away from Bain Hamid's dream. That's right. You know, it's no accident that these parashiot occur at this time that we're dealing with right now, that we're studying right now, especially the para aduma. Yeah, every single year. The fact that it's red speaks of Esau. And that Mashiach is stuck in an impure place. Because the sages ask in Barakot, where is Mashiach? He's in Rome. He's at the gates. Wow. I, I was just reading the Ben Hayon, and he's got some interesting things about the power okay. of Duma. So it also points to uh, Teshuva. Um, yeah, the whole section of Power of Duma, and get this, I was reading the Orkaim, and I'll connect, I'm going to connect it with this. The Para has a gematria of 285. The Orkaim quotes the Kabbalists saying that this is equivalent to the dimensions of judgment. Wow. There are 285 dimensions of judgment in Kabbalah. So the Para Aduma counteracts that. Yeah, if um, if there is so much as even one or two hairs, it diminishes the judgment. So what he's saying is you want this judgment. You want to be dealt with in the here and now. Um. So the Benish High says that the whole section of the Parah Aduma, the red cow, could be a remez to Teshuva, repentance. The red cow purifies a person who has become defiled as a result of contact with a dead body in a similar way. And I, this thought just hit me again because we're on the subject of, you know, the so-called church is that it could be seen as a dead body because it's lifeless. I thought you were going to say there's a dead body hanging on a crucifixion stake in the church. Well, that too. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, more to the point. Both to because the point. what do we learn about contact with the corpse, especially if you're in the covered place where the body is? You know, a lot of Christianity obviously takes the body down and they just focus on the cross, but um, there are still people that have crucifixes with the body of Messiah hanging on it, you know, and to think of putting a corpse underneath a covered roof and then having services there. I mean, are we trying to do like a funeral type thing or is this some kind of necromancy stuff? Because, I mean, having service where a dead body is just out in the open and exposed. And remember, we talked last week, you actually don't uh, reveal the dead body of a, of a fellow fallen Jew. 
you actually keep the the coffin closed so i mean it's yeah, getting more covered, disturbing. covered in their tallit they're yeah. wrapped in their they're wrapped in their tallit yeah they're shrouds burial shrouds you know, you know and, uh, the uh, the man has a kittel actually yeah and isn't it not halakha that um, a dead body within a a residence, a house, renders the house to me along with anyone who is in it? Yep. I'm going to go look at that context of the corpse. Keep going. But, uh, yeah, see. These dots right now are just insane. Yeah, the red cow purifies the person who has become defiled as a result of contact with a dead body. And in a similar way, to Suva uh, purifies a person who has become defiled through his own sins, which is, which is called Matim. Padnedi Bakim, Bo, the dead who are stuck to him. This was mentioned in Yehezkel 3625. Uh, I shall sprinkle on you pure water and you shall become pure. In Varaigra 1630, before Hashem, you shall be cleansed from all your sins. In the above pursuit, Vayikhu Eleka Para Oduma is a remission to Suva, which also purifies a defiled person similar to the red heifer. We can explain Para Oduma as a remission to Shuva since the Lashon, since the Lashon is similar to Isaiah 24 19, the poor heat, heat pura aris. The earth has crumbled, and to Tehillim seventy four thirteen Ata Pura Po Rerati Yom. You crumpled the sea with your mighty with your might. The meaning is Ritzutz U Shevira, shattering and breaking. This is also similar to Isaiah 63 3. Pura de uh, a wine press I trod alone. And here the wine press is called Pura. Notice these are synonyms to the, the para. Yep. Count. And since the grapes are crumbled and broken up within it, similar to stepping on them. As was also explained by the Radex, we know that the uh, Eduma, the redness, is a remez to the sins as we saw in Isaiah 118, Im Yi Yu, if your sins were like crimson, they will become white as snow. Uh, come on. And, and Laban's name, 
happens to be white. It's, mm. it's the Hebrew word for white. Also the root of Lebanon, which is a name for the temple. Yep. Okay, so I have Eruvine 68A. And it says, as we learned in a Mishnah, if a corpse is in a house and the house has many entrances. A side note, are not churches called Welcome to the House of God? Uh, <laughs> um, I was glad when they said unto me, come, let us go into the house of the Lord. But anyway, uh, if a corpse is in a house and the house has many entrances, they are all ritually impure goodness it is currently unknown through which entrance the corpse will be removed from the house and any of the entrances might be used for this purpose goodness the crazy part about this is we know that the whole aspect of yeshua is all about life and resurrection it's not about death yeah like the the end goal of something passing away is for it to live you know we we read many times in commentaries god is called the god of the living not the god of the dead you know parsha and more says the cohen is not even allowed to be in the room if someone passes away you know because why i believe it's rashi that brings this down i have to double check but because we don't want the connection of the priest connected to death just like we find in other religions you know the the whole thing with um again necromancy and things like that um the exorcists the exorcisms and all that kind of stuff that the movies show all that kind of craziness you know it's always like oh go get the priest you know vampire stuff and the wooden stakes and things like that. So, I mean, it's just kind of, it's like Judaism makes sure that the Cohen is so far removed from any of these connotations that it's like, it's crazy. But um, yeah, anyway, uh, you don't want to have a corpse in the house and just, you know. Yeah, that's why in Judaism, burials tend to take place rather quickly. Yeah, that's also for the same reason that you don't you don't see trees on the Temple Mount. Wow. Why? Any deciduous tree sheds it, drops its leaves in autumn, and that is death. <laughs> but what do you see on a Temple Mount today? You see trees. <sighs> They're not supposed to be any. Oh my goodness. Did you seriously just say that that there's a the aspect of death with the tree when Yes. That's crazy. And Mashiach was Mashiach was executed on a tree. Person is he who hangs on a tree. This, this is why they this is why they're so insistent on taking the body down, especially before Shabbat Hagadol. 
or the Shabbat that actually occurs on Pesach, you can't have yeah. that. It's death. Pesach's about redemption, about life from, from death, about being redeemed from death. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is what? Eternal life through Messiah Yeshua. The thief comes to kill death, still and destroy, but Yeshua says, but I come to give you life and life abundantly. I, I didn't come to give you death is basically what he's saying. It's like, there, there is a lot of death that goes on. So anytime you see a lot of death being handed out, it's not me. <laughs> Christianity has handed out death on far too many occasions for the last 2,000 years. But more specifically for the last 1,900, and I have this book called The List. It lists pretty, it's very thorough, very well researched. Uh, took ten, it took him 10 years, um, but I'll just grab it here real quick, but this. Whoa. This is not <laughs> light reading. I'm not kidding you. Yeah, the cover definitely looks intense. You know, it's, you know, Martin Luther's treatise, The Jews and Their Lies, right? Hmm? which served as the blueprint for the Holocaust, which Hitler used. Good old blood libels. You know, Christianity has brought death into the world. Judaism strives to bring life. That's the Sulkan Arut. We're tasked to protect life, to preserve it any, by any means necessary. This is why the rabbis were always hesitant and the Sanhedrin, and if you read the Talmud carefully enough, if you study it carefully enough, you will see that they strive not to physically put anyone to death. They practically go out of their way to make sure that doesn't happen. They give, try to give everyone the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, which can we just mention? The Sanhedrin was not the one that put Yeshua to death. Exactly. Because the Sanhedrin did not exist during that time frame because they exiled themselves in 27 CE. Yeah. Which meant whatever Sanhedrin was saying, crucify him, crucify him, or doing the kangaroo court thing, um, that wasn't legit because where do you do, where do you hand out death sentences if you hand them out? <laughs> Chamber of Hewn Stone for 300, right? Then you have to have the 70 plus one in order to do that. Can't just go willy-nilly handing out death penalties. And Talmud tells us if a Sanhedrin put anyone to death once in 70 years, that's bloodthirsty. So just a quick side note on all that, because overall, what the things that we're talking about, it sounds like we're bashing Christianity, right? But the, the sad part is, this is what people are stuck in. These are, this is the information that no pastor will tell you. I mean, what we're doing is presenting the dichotomy. 
yeah. between the two. You know, the, it, this is not directed at the lay people. I want to make this clear because you and I were one of them. And because Hashem brought us out and brought us to realize the centrality of the Torah. And that's what we need to live by. We're striving to let others know. Yeah. Not, not yeah. everyone's ready. Everyone has, has their time, you know, and we're not here to like beat you over the head and say, you know, whoosh, whoosh, you know, get, get over here or else you're, you're a done deal. No, we won't do what Christianity does say, Oh, if you don't accept Jesus, you're going to hell, you know, like that. No, that's not why we're here. And can we just mention that we're not in charge of telling people whether or not they have salvation? <laughs> no. Yeah, that's, exactly. that's kind of an awkward thing. Where, where it's like, we, no, not kind of, we don't have that authority. It's never been given to us. Nope. Hashem is our salvation. He's the one who saves. He's the one who makes alive the dead. Yeah. So, I mean, just all that to say, you know, it's it's one of those things because you just said a beautiful statement. Not a lot of people are ready for that, you know, and, and again, you know, you think about us getting out of there, you know, it it's it's a miracle. Because never in a thousand years did I ever think I would convert to Judaism. You know, you uh, ask me, oh, are you going to eat kosher and just keep the Shabbat? And it's just like, do the what? <laughs> what dance move is that? You, 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 know? you should have heard my wife. Are we turning Orthodox? Oh, <laughs> <You know? laughs> when we were first getting into this, you know, and I said, well, no. But then as we started to progress in our observance, gaining you know, a deeper understanding, now she's getting real serious about the halakha of Shabbat, you know, because, you know, we're both beginning to understand. And, you know, when you study the halakha, it's all about one thing. It's about holiness. Ooh. Striving. Talk about that. Every way possible. They should try to cover all the bases, you know. And they don't want to leave no stone unturned. Yeah. You know, so I find that amazing and encouraging. I don't see it as a burden. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, just making this available, you know, just just so you know, just kind of like an FYI, you know, it's uh, an, an R.E.A. Copland's uh, Torah Anthology, Volume 1. He actually has a whole section in there about the Jews are called the infiltrators, if you will, for Hashem into creation because Hashem cannot reveal himself fully to creation because that takes away free will. But however, if, he, if Hashem has agents that have their particular mission to go inside of creation to reveal him without Hashem having to fully reveal himself, you know, it was, it was just a neat little, uh, concept with how he put it and you know that's really how we always have to think you know that we're revealing Hashem in the world Yeshua said it best you are to be my witnesses 
in all of the world, you know? And if you're witnessing Yeshua, you're witnessing Hashem because everything about Yeshua says, don't be looking at me. It's not me that you're accepting. It's Hashem you're accepting. Yep. This is why it's so crazy to me that I thought the the apostles had no problem calling Yeshua Hashem because it was just like they called him Adonai. Well, Thomas said, uh, which is crazy, John 21, I believe, when Yeshua showed him the nail prints and all that, you know, and the piercing of the side. You know, and then Thomas said, you know, my Lord and my God, he was acknowledging the fact that Hashem rose him from the dead. He wasn't calling Yeshua God at all. Yep, John 20, 28. Thomas replied, my Lord, my God. Yeah, because, you know, the whole thing is whenever, you know, the the mention of Hashem or Adonai or things like that, you know, uh, even Kephas, um, his uh, declaration that you're Ben Elohim kind of thing, like the whole connotation of it's not him, it's not it's not Yeshua that's the end-all, be-all. It's like everything is to Hashem, you know? So the whole understanding, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, you know, apart from my Father, I can do nothing. You know, all those all those statements that Yeshua tells us about himself, like, it's not me, it's him. You know, just like when, when the Torah is given and we say, Torah, Asher you know, like we lift up the pinky and, you know, everything is all to adoration of Hashem. Like even even when we bow to the king, it's really honoring Hashem. You know, it's not that we're bowing to the king, you know, like it never just stops there with the image and the, the manifestation, if you will, of Hashem. It's always to Hashem himself. Which is just a crazy concept to really think, you know, because sometimes you would think. Like, okay, so if you're going to call him Adonai, then why, you know, like, I guess a, a normal uh, conversation or a normal way you would see that apart from Jewish understanding is like, oh, that's Adonai. And it's just like, no, Hashem is Adonai. <laughs> but we learn, like, for, for instance, just to put it, it with the source, in the future, there are going to be three things called by the name of Hashem. The Zadikim, Yerushalayim, and currently we have the third one is already called by the name of Hashem, which is the Torah. Right? But when you look at the Zadikim, when you look at Jerusalem, you're not looking at Hashem. So it's just like, so why are they called by that? I mean, you come to this realization when you study Kabbalah. And you realize that when John, when Yeshua himself says it in John 4.24, Hashem is that spirit. But then John says in the first chapter, nobody has seen him at any time. The only son who's in the lap of the father. And that's a completely allegorical statement. 
<laughs> yeah. It's like, what does Hashem's lap really look like? Yeah, it's strictly allegorical, like the chariot of the Baal Shem Tov. In one of the Kabbalistic meditations that I learned, they're one of the first ones. You know, it's the meditation of the Sephiroth, the meditation on the four, four worlds. You know, it's all allegory. You're not looking for a form. Right. See, that's the thing. That See, that's where... That's the other thing about having a crucifix in your home. It, it's an idolatrous image. You're focusing because on... John a says nobody has seen him. You can't sit there and tell me you know what Messiah looks like. You cannot tell me that, especially if you're one of those who says the Torah is done away with. Because all the mitzvot are a shadow pointing to Mashiach, who is the one casting the shadow. Not being completely allegorical here, but also the mitzvot also point us to they unite this world and the world to come. Hmm. Because Mashiach is the door. He says it himself. He's the way to the world to come. That is the justification for us performing the mitzvah of the Torah. Because Musar brings down that this world is like a corridor or a, a waiting room to go into the Alam Haba. Because <laughs> the way into it. there is through a door. <laughs> yeah. See, there it is. That's Kabbalah. Um, Man, this is like this is like some Selah stuff right here, you know? Because, <laughs> you know, you think, why do we close our eyes and cover our eyes when we say the Shema, the greatest declaration of faith and the Holy One blessed is He. It's, it's done in complete, like, we can't see anything. It's like we're being placed in the cleft of the rock. <laughs> and Hashem okay. says, stand, I mean, this one always gets me, stand in the place that is with me. That's what he says to Moshe. The Orkaim record says that in his comment on Parashat Bamidbar regarding the arrangement of the tribes around the Mishkan. Man. You know, this universe is the place that is with him. He exists outside of it. This is why no one has seen him. And no one ever will. Wow. Got a lot of eternity ahead of us. <laughs> John says, you know, we look for his coming. We don't shrink back from it. But we 
we'll see him as he is because we will be like him. Like him. That that's that's intense. <laughs> this is one of the deepest. Yeah, I'm being very mystical here in my, <clears throat> you know, bringing out the the mystical aspect of the Torah because. I am someone who studies the writings of the Arizal quite intensely at times. And this is what I come away with is all this. It's, and sometimes well, you know, I, ask my, I ask myself sometimes, how can this mind of mine contain the infinite, you know? But somehow it just happens, you know? It, it's, it's a mystical experience. Yeah, it's a gift. You know? I was just going to encourage you on that because we do know that studying the more mystical aspects of the Torah, that hastens the final redemption. So not that it, we all need to go out and study Kabbalah like right now, but <laughs> uh, I'll put it the way my Habruta puts it, that it's beautiful to have the seasoning of the Kabbalistic insights. You know, like one of the, the, the most sweetest tastes of Torah is when you're reading in the Or HaKaim and then he drops a whole uh, Zohar page. You know, you're just like, wait, what? You're just like, I was just swimming in the kiddie pool and then all of a sudden it's like an ocean. You're just like, what? You just went Who to just the 12-foot side. You just jumped off the high dive into the 12-foot pool. <laughs> yeah, you're just like, I was having a good time. And then all of a sudden, bam, you know? But because it, the way it's it seamlessly flows into the commentary, you know, it's just like this beautiful moment of like, whoa, like the vastness of, you know, what exists in the deeper commentaries. And it's just kind of like these things happen throughout different writings, like you know, places you at least expect it, like Rashi. You know, like Mr. Prashat Man is like, okay, you want to do the song at the sea? Okay, let's talk about the temple that's going to come from Shemaim. You're like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like we're at the sea right now and you're talking about the temple and Hashem having like two right hands or something, three right hands, like Anyway, stuff like that. <laughs> you just reminded me of something else about the Ari. You mentioned the Yom Suf, and I'm like, because the Satan was standing there prosecuting the Jewish people, right? Mm -hmm. And Hashem hands over Iov to the oh. Satan to distract him. What happened to Yeshua? He was handed over. He, he even said that himself. And the Son of Man will be handed over to sinful men. Like a Azazel. <laughs> I'm like, oh, man. I'm just like, he's dead. that's Rome. Rome is filled with sinful men. Pontius Pilate being the cruelest governor at the time to ever govern over Judea. And, you know, I mean, this guy didn't hesitate to crucify anybody that stirred up any kind of trouble. Which just makes me think of the passage we just read in John. It's like a very facetious thing. Like, should I crucify your king? 
I mean, I don't know. Pump me up a little bit, you know? Well, yeah, like him washing his hands of it, you know? Yeah. Which is, by the way, what you do when there's a corpse laying outside of your city and you don't know who killed him. (laughs) That's literally a part of the ritual. (laughs) Anyway, rumination. Yeah. Okay. So we know that the theologians hide them in translation traditions, but a diligent student of scripture might uncover them as they study Psalm 119. I've often, I often refer to it as the Torah Hall of Fame Psalm. Nice. Or other passages that praise the Torah of Hashem. The one I always quote in Hebrews, Ki Mitzvotecha Eminah. Yeah, for your commandments, our faith. Yeah, meaning that he is faithful to them. Watch the gra- See, this is why the grammar is so important. He for mitzvotecha, your instructions. Emunah, our faith. He's faithful to them. I'll show you my faith by my works. Oh my gosh. Yaakov again. What are you going to do with that? You can't, in light of that, you cannot dismiss it. But what do they do? Jurisdictions, dispensations. To explain it, try, they try to explain it away, but it, it just falls flat on its face. So, what happens when you steal fire? You get burned. Didn't so, tell you not to touch the stove. <laughs> so, just side note: uh, the doing the commandments as a sign that you have faith in God. Like, can we just say lie on that for like ever? Because <laughs> <laughs> you know you don't have to ask someone. Oh, do you, do you believe in Hashem? You are you a follower of the Mashiach? It's like uh, light candles for Shabbat to keep kosher. Uh, dress a new, you know, like <laughs> you don't have to say anything, it's crazy. Oh my gosh, yeah. Notice it's about slogans, it's about faith statements, creeds. Oh. I believe this, you gotta I believe speak that. about it from the previous rumination. There's a thing we say, or I don't know if we say it, but I've heard it said that, uh, you know, if you're if you're bragging a lot, it's like you're trying to compensate for something. The me thinks thou dost protest too much kind of thing. Like you must be guilty since you're like very, very boisterous. You know, like secure people don't have to go around saying, you know, all of their assets or whatever. Yeah. It yeah, I don't know. It's <laughs> yeah. This is this is an intense rumination for me right now. I'm I'm getting just like yeah. all sorts of stuff. <laughs> yeah. The categories are found in the very words used to describe 
the blessed commandments that come from the mouth of the Almighty. See, this is why it's so important to always come back to the Torah. They are words like mitzvot, commandments, mishpatim, judgments, edut, witnesses, pikudim, precepts, and hukim, statutes, ordinances. When you begin to look for these Torah words, you will quickly see three categories that make up the Torah, which itself is a single unit. I mentioned this right at the outset, pretty much. You know, the, the, the three primary is Hokim, Mitzvot, and Mishpatim. But they still are in unity. It demonstrates Hashem's unity of purpose, of mind. Like this Parsha, you know, who caught. Hulk, the Hukim are not explained in detail. Mm -hmm. As is the Para Duma. Is not really explained, although I have been reading it from the Benish High here. You know, basically what he's doing is Gezer uh, Shava, he's pointing to other verses that are similar in wording to bring about a, a more uh, an in depth meaning, but also he's using Pardes as well, bringing out synonyms, words that have a similar sound or a similar. Uh, definition. Um, I'm always reminded of Kagiga 14, the four rabbis who went into Pardes. Oh, such a great Talmud story. I mean, three went in and didn't come out, but only one came out. You know, Rabbi Akiva. Um, Which is funny because literally he means heal. You know, the Ekev. <laughs> On the heel. <laughs> the heel is the one who made it out. <laughs> and you know, now that I see that we're on how the church behaves theologically, you know, I realized that that, that particular uh, DAF, um, they're trying to, it's like they're trying to force their way into the orchard. Like the foxes that attack the vineyard? Yeah. <laughs> or the story about the fox and the lion I read last week from... Uh, yeah. It's like, be careful uh, sticking your head in the mouth of a lion. <laughs> or the lion shouldn't be listening to the fox. You know, the fox is going to try and outwit you. Hmm. Yeah. The lion could have said, hey, I'll just go hunting on my own. I'll know I'll catch something. Um, but in regards to the, theo the theologians, you know, I think they've tried to force their way into the part S. But unfortunately, the penalty is one rabbi went insane. One became a heretic and the other just flat out died. 
Yeah. The only rabbi Akiva came out, you know, he came out and, and, and they say that he came, he went in, in peace and he came out in peace. Shalom. Saying that he was complete. As if to say that he was complete and that he had everything he needed to go in, in the first place. Right. So thus he could come out with all that he needed. So yeah, you know, Parshat Hukat, you know, we lose Miriam, we lose Aharon, yeah. you know, and after each of those incidents, there's very, very traumatic things that happen you know, in the Torah portion, and it really has a crazy ending with taking down giants. You know, so we see this crazy juxtaposition of failure and victory that happens, right? You know, oh, death, where is thy sting kind of thing, which is probably one of the greatest hooks ever, right? That even though we fail at times we can still rise to victory because one of the things i was just reading in the zohar during parsha balak and it was talking about never call yourself a rasha and it's like how can you say never call myself a rasha because say i do some heinous sin well the understanding is you always have an opportunity to repent I mean, but you have to go for it. If you harden your heart, obviously, it's going to be harder to repent. However, you're not to ever consider yourself defeated is basically what the, the point is, which is crazy to think about, you know, that Hashem is like, come on, pick it up, pick it up, you know. So you had a you had a, a horrible failure. OK, let's fix it. <laughs> obviously depending on what you actually did, there's going to be the consequences that go along with that. But you're going to make tikkun. There's, there's things you can do. You know, and the Torah gives us these prescriptions, which is ultimately the culmination of the red heifer because it's just kind of like, that's to purify you from death, which is the, the ultimate, the wages of sin. You know, and Rashi brings down that the the para aduma is to atone for the chet uh the uh the chet haegel the sin of the golden calf right which is like you just said a constant remembrance of that <laughs> so one of the other things that you were saying as you say para aduma if you do another um homiletic of the meaning of the grammar aduma is from the word edum, which is the word for red. Para is the word atonement. So you literally have the red atonement, like the, the blood atonement. You know, and the, the whole Hebrews passage that I think we've quoted many times about the, uh, the significance of blood and, and bringing atonement. So just these different things about, you know, these, these things are beyond us, but it doesn't take us learning them in their fullness before we can engage in them.
because again, at the end of the tour portion, we take down giants. There's no logical reason that a bunch of slaves from Egypt can destroy giants, <laughs> much less an 80 year old man. <laughs> uh, and I'm talking two for the price of one, like Sakon and Og, like people were freaked out about these. Oh, and by the way, we, did, we didn't start it. They did. They were just like, oh, you know what? We're coming to kill you. And it's like, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> you know? So anyway. Yeah. <clears throat> Who caught, man? Yeah, you if you track on? these words and compare them to one another, you discover something interesting. But God calls Mishpat is something which makes logical sense to the human mind. It makes sense not to steal or not to murder. On the other hand, a hoax is something that makes, makes you scratch your head and wonder what purpose such a commandment has. Hmm. The hoax of the red heifer is a perfect example of a hoax. Then there are all the mitzvot. These are the commandments that fill in the middle ground between the mishpatim, which are logical, and the hukim, that make no earthly sense. See, it's a little mystical there. <laughs> yeah. So like intermediary commandments, so to speak? Yeah. Um, yeah, there, there are the ones that are explained. But the Hukim, they're just not. I mean, even me reading from the Benish High here, when he brings out all these synonyms still, it kind of, it touches on the mystery of it. It, it, try, it tends to illuminate it. But in reality, as I was reading this before the podcast, you know, what he's doing here is basically the surface. For every other um, pair of shot in this commentary, he really gets deep with the gematria. I mean, just that's like, my favorite. Yeah, you know. <laughs> but here, he connects verses together, like the sages do. You know. Um, when he mentioned the shattering and breaking, I, I immediately thought of the shattering of the vessels at creation. Mm -hmm. You know, a wine press I tried alone in here. The wine press was called Pura, since the grapes are crumpled and broken up within, within it, similar to stepping on them as was also explained by the Radic. We know that the Edumah, the redness, is a remez to the sins we saw in Isaiah, which I quote, you know. So, okay, so hence Teshuva is called para aduma, red cow, to mean that it is able to break and crumple the power of the sin, sins, and when a person makes Teshuva, the destructive angels that get created from his sins 
will be eliminated and will be unable to prosecute him. Uh, that's the Ari right there. Uh, Parashah Beishalak regarding Iov. And that was Mina Kenegic Mina regarding Job. Because Job was one of Pharaoh's advisors and he told him to enslave the Jewish people and take their wealth. And what happened to Iov? Everything was taken from him. Oh my gosh. Did he you was handed, and he was handed over to the Satan to distract him. Hashem does this with the Sitarakra quite a bit, man. He throws in this monkey wrench that just totally distracts him. Mm -hmm. Did you know we do that as well in our observances? This is from Shavile Pincus. Um, Parsha Kitaitse or Kitavo. I always get those confused. But uh, in one of those particular Torah portions, he said, you know, why do we wash our hands after we eat bread? The Mayim acronym is what it's called. You know, we think, you know, in ancient in antiquity, it was just to wipe the salt off the fingers. But there's a whole thing about... Uh, the clipot and um, like an Azazel offering, you know, to distract the forces of impurity uh, from saying that we had a meal just because we're gluttonous. <laughs> and because they're focused on the citra or because they're focused on the, the afterwaters that just got dumped out, Oops, throwing things because they're focused on that. We're left at the table free and clear of Klipot so that we can say the Birkat Hamazon mm. with no prosecutors because how many times at tables do you have the luring and the temptation to talk about non-Torah things and when there's no Torah spoken at a table which is the altar it's like into eating idolatrous food and it's like no I just washed my hands so therefore as I'm getting ready to say my Birkat I just want to let you know I wasn't at a table of idolatry. Anyway, um, that's one thing. The other thing he brought up was there's calf hair that sticks out of the tefillin shell roach. Did you ever notice the little right. hair? That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, yep. Dude, uh, he was just like, it's a just reminder like, yeah. of the Eagle Sahav. Yeah. Like, remember but, that uh, one you time? You know what? They're, they're black hairs, right? Yeah. Is that what they are? They're black. And they're not red. They're not red. That that's the thing. The Paraduma cannot have any hairs that are off color, that are not red. Anyway, so just saying, we we do that too in our mitzvot. <laughs> <laughs> so don't ever wonder. I mean, well, yeah, you're free to free and clear to wonder as much as you would like actually yeah. that's the beautiful thing about Hashem he's like oh yeah you may not understand you may not know but not saving Ishmael it's good um just just know there's there's lots of things that happen with the mitzvot that we do you know like these aren't empty rituals no you know lighting candles on Shabbat it's like oh, I don't get it it's like well you don't have to just know you're doing a whole lot of stuff that if you could see what you were doing You'd be like, okay, can I light more candles? 
It's like, well, actually, yes, you can, according to Halaki. You can light up to like 12 candles if you want. I mean, I don't know who does that, but you know. <laughs> By the way, that's a crazy thing I've heard a custom to light like I think it was like eight or 12 candles or something. It was something crazy. Like, you're just like, dude, are you trying to burn the house down? Or like, what are you doing? You got but there, kids. Yeah. So, you get, yeah, you can light, you can light like a lot of candles for Shabbat. <laughs> One candle for each child in the home. Nice. Yeah. They do that in um, Kabad. Wow. Because I often wondered about that myself. But then I read somewhere that that's the case. I looked it up on Kabbalah. They, it's You light an additional candle. That is, the wife does for each child. Wow. <laughs> Which, side note, what's that really saying, you know, about children? And, and them being little lights. Instilling the light of Torah in them. Because, and you shall teach these things to your children. And didn't Yeshua say, put your lamp on the table? Where do we light the Shabbat candles? Who, who puts a candle under a bushel? <laughs> but they put it on the table where it can be seen. A city that's set on a hill cannot be Good. You know, it's um, you mentioned Selah earlier, and so um, I was reading <laughs> the Arizal about you know Moshe raised his hand and hit this and hit the Selah. Bro, come on, man! <laughs> Rock with his yeah. staff. It's, yeah, it's called the Selah. That's Okay. The Midbar 2011, Moshe's area was already explained regarding the verse, and a new king arose over Egypt, Shemot 1.8, that Selah, rock, is the level of part Suf of Raquel, the female of Zerampin. For the entire 40 years of the generation of the desert, the pairing had been between the part Suf of Yaakov and Leah, and the part Suf of Leah, his wife called Dor Hamidbar, the generation of the wilderness or the desert. Moshe wanted to pair Raquel with Zerampin as well, but was unsuccessful and sinned instead. The matter of Moshe's staff was also explained there that it was a light that went out from the Yesod of Abba called Moshe to the outside opposite the face of Zer, and it stands to the side of the part Suf, Dor Hamidbar. Moshe had planned to return the illumination made below through the Panim to the back where Raquel was located to rectify and increase the part Suf Raquel so that she could turn to face, turn face to face with Zer. This is the sword of, and he hit the rock Selah with his staff, but Midbar 2011, Selah being Raquel, she only receives light from the Yesod of Ima from the backside, which is Aye expanded with Yods, which is the Gematria, which has the Gematria of Selah 
160. Therefore he hid it with his staff, the place where the lights go out from within Zer through the face in order to return the lights to the back of Raquel. It was a sin, however, because it is now possible to push off these lights with a hit of the staff to the backside until the Selah, which is Raquel, returns face to face with Zer. Then these lights would flow to her automatically without a beating by way of the Hanim. And then you get into Aharon's death in this Parsha. And Aharon is gathered to his people, Hor Ahar. There was a reason why Aharon was buried at Hor Ahar. They are two Akoraim, one Akoraim being that of Ima and the second Akoraim of Malkut. They are the level of the name Elohim on the level of the simple Akoraim, which has a gematria of 200. With the five letters of the simple Elohim, they become Har, mountain. This is the soul of Har Ha Elohim, mountain of Elohim, as explained on the verse, Moshe was a shepherd, Shemot 3.1. Thus the upper Akaraim of Benah is one Har, and the lower Akaraim of the Malkut is the second Har, one standing on top of the other. The upper Har is hidden and included in the lower Har, and then is called Hor Hahar meaning har on top of a har, as Kazal write. Aharon was buried in these two Akaraim, and thus the level of har is hinted to by the middle of the two letters in the name Aharon. <laughs> the middle letters of his name. Wow. Okay. And then, uh, Bamibar 21.5, the people speak against God and against Moshe. Lachem ha-klokel. The Hebrew word ha-klokel, rotten, is missing above. Leaving two combinations of the letters, kuth lamed. This, is, this reason is because there are five hovayas of the five kasadim and five hovayas of the five uh, geberot in the Da'at of Zer called Heaven. Each set of the five Hobayos has a gematria of 130 Kufla Med. That number should be familiar. Um, the man came from there, as it says, I will rain down to you bread from heaven, Shemot 16.4. There it was called Lechem HaKlokel because it was the level of the dew that descends from the head of Zerampin called Heaven. The dew is the two crowns that comprise his da'at, the crown of Hesed, even though it is also equal to 130, is considered to be the level of Av, father, which has a gematria equal to that of Hesed, the male crown. But the crown of Gavura in the female is called Kuf Lamed. In the soul, the da'at of women is Kuf Lamed. Hey, Kala. Pride. And the bread. Wow. 
This is why it's light. This is this is the mystical aspect of when your wife lights the candles and bakes the bread in preparation for Shabbat. I'm going to look at a Targum. Keep going. Uh, see, if the gematria of the four letters, the Hovaya, which is 26, is drawing with Av, <coughs> the 72 name, <coughs> and the 32 paths of wisdom, it equals 130. All of them are called Av since they are male. As explained on the verse, God saw that he turned to see. Shemot 3, 4, that is when Moshe turned to see the burning bush. Just as a side note, this is crazy. In the Aleph Bet, the letter Kuf, 19th letter of the Aleph Bet, interchanges with a Gimel, a Kaf, and a Chet, and an Ayin. So when you talk about this Kuf Lamed and the Kala, you have the kuflam and hey, kala, bride, but you also can have the chet, lamet, hey, the chala, like the bread. You also have the ola, the whole burnt offering, because ayin, lamet, hey. And, oh, uh, the kaf, lamet, hey, would be the bride, slika. Because kaf and kuf it interchange with each other, but gemel lamed hey is also connected to the word geula redemption. Just little targum drops there on the kuf lamed. Okay. Yeah, um, I remember uh, last week. Um, yeah, last Sunday we were getting to Bamibar twenty one fourteen, the book of the wars of God. Oh yeah, that's in there. Forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, Bamibar twenty one fourteen. You word... thought the Infinity Saga was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, the word Hebrew word Sufa, B spelled Samek Vav Pei Hey. Should be divided into two parts, Pei Vav and Samek Hey. They are two names. Elohimus Gematria is Pei Vav 86. Oh, it's also the Gematria. It's also the Gematria for nature. And Adonai, which has a Gematria of Samek Hey 65, they are the two traits of judgment. When joined together, they total 151. The so God, your God, is a zealous kuf, noon, aleph, kana, God. Wow. Just curious, how does that connect to Pincus? Uh... <laughs> I could jump ahead to that one. Um, so, 
Looks like uh, numbers 2511. What do they use in that verse? Yep. Kuf, noon, olive. There it is. That's what I was looking for. Yeah, he says the same thing, basically. Noise. Nice. the son of Eleazar, son of Aharon HaKohen. The three references to zealousness in the verse is zeal, my zeal, and my zeal are the three yeas expanded with haze, which has have a gematria of 151. The rebua of aye is like this. One times aleph, five times he, ten times yod, and five times he, 25, for a gematria of 151. The name Elohim, 86, and Adonai, 65, also have a combined gematria of 151. Their sign is... I went down to the nut garden, Sher Hasharim 611. Three times 151 is Ginnat garden. Wow. 151, Kuf, Hey, the word for zeal. That's crazy. Yeah, his commentary on, on Balak is lengthy, which I'll have to yeah. because the next, uh, next episode, Best Writer Show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I actually shared a couple of screenshots from it in the group. Uh, okay, I'll the, come out. The, the origin of Balak and Belam in the era of Rav. Um, but um, yeah. Okay. But getting back to it here, uh, it can be understood that the Hukim are the commandments that reflect the world to come. Part of the mystery. Yeah. See, they're mystical, ultimately speaking, because that's what the Orkaim says. As a matter of fact, I'll just go ahead and get it out because I have a bookmark. Um, I thought it was really amazing. Um, back moments. Forgot I moved my bookmark over to the next partial. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Shim, give you eyes to find it. Thank you. 
Well, I'll tell you one of the things that happens to me when I'm looking for stuff. Like, I, I kind of cringe sometimes, and I'm like, now, where was that thing I read? Because when I go looking for stuff, lo and behold, everything in the world pops out. It's like, hey, hey, look at me, look at me. <laughs> so I applaud you, man, for being able to be like, no, there's a specific thing I'm looking for. It's over here, you know, like. I would be gone. <laughs> <laughs> but I love the understanding of the hukat being the Olama Bab Mitzvot because, again, I, I've been recently reading the anthology of, of Arya Koplan, so that's why I keep bringing that up. But he has a whole thing about, you know, when, our, when we pass away and our souls leave our bodies, that the the soul goes through a state of confusion and the only thing that helps it kind of focus is its body this is why there's a whole lot that goes along goes yeah. along with uh taking care of the human remains after we pass away but the whole point is it gets into this understanding of where in the alam haba it, it's a place where you have everything hitting your consciousness all at one time so it's impossible to see you know with our current uh opticals like the way we see things now you know we see like this is this object that's that object you know like in the alam haba there's this there's this overwhelming like that th here's this here's this here's this you know and it's almost like it almost blends together kind of thing so you know how we see death and life you know together in one particular mitzvah you know like that's alam haba stuff yeah kind of thing. so <clears throat> i think it's interesting yeshua gives us an allusion to this when he says i'm the life and the resurrection because you know in order for you to have resurrection happen there has to be an aspect of death that goes on so it's just like, so are you, are you the living death and resurrection or is just like, you know, we skip a step? Like, what's that all about? But. Yeah, it's like when he rose Lazarus, you notice how he didn't get anywhere near him. Right. The grave. Yeah. Just called out to him. I mean, considering where he spent most of his time in the environs of the temple, you know, he was very careful about that particular halakha. Oh, not contracting impurity. For yeah, exactly. Master, had you been here, he would not have died, you know. <laughs> but Yeshua says to Martha, it is this way so that the works of God may be made manifest. Um, but what I do remember about this that the Orkheim says about the Paraduma, I, met, yeah, I mentioned it earlier, is that it has a gematria of 285, and in Kabbalah, yes. it's the number of dimensions of judgment. Yes, I do so remember that's, that. That's what he's saying. You know, he brings out the Kabbalah of that. Um, 
wait, wait, wait. That that whole example about reading in the Orhakaim and we're having a good time, and then all of a sudden he just drops all this crazy Kabbalah on us. That's <laughs> that's yeah. what happens with the red heifer. <laughs> yeah. I, I love know, it. I, I, I was like, oh boy. <laughs> um, yeah, Orakheim's such a fun read because it's like, he's like, so I have a question, you know, and then it's like, so based off of this question, I have another question. Okay, so now we're going to make a statement. <laughs> well, with what you said earlier, when you're looking for something and something else pops at you, and also remember uh, reading uh, reading this, uh, where he says, in truth, this can be understood on the basis of the fact that, in general, all the mitzvot of the Torah are categorized either as mitzvot that are shlikios, uh, 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 if I'm pronouncing that right, uh, intuitive mitzvot, or mitzvot that are uh, shimiyos, received mitzvot. The mitzvah of Para Aduma, however, does not fit into either category, as will be explained. The mitzvot that are shlikiyot are those that are dictated by logic. Exactly what he's saying here in the rumination. So I think he's red or Kaim. <laughs> Get you some. Yeah. Yeah. High G burn here. <laughs> Gotta take out that stealth ship. <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm big on the expanse. I will, it's a great series. <laughs> Shameless advertising. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. I'll tell you, like, the the crazy things that happen, especially, you know, because of the Marvel movies and things like that and how much that's obviously impacted <laughs> me. <laughs> but, I mean, really, in all this, you know, we get these huge pictures and metaphors for everything that we study in Torah. So, you know, it's sometimes it's easier just to <laughs> phrase it in that way because it's just like, this really gets the point across. <laughs> well, yeah, you have the... Uh... You have the Earth, you have Mars, and then you have the Belters. The Earth is entirely controlled by the UN. Mars is an independent military power. And then you have the Belters who live in the asteroids or what's commonly, yeah, what's referred to as the belt, but not just the asteroids. You have us. Uh, space stations and asteroids that have been colonized like Sarah's and Eros, the two largest asteroids in the belt. Um, but yeah, it's really great story writing, you know, and uh, yes, I do see a lot of metaphors in there, especially the narrative of the proto-molecule. I mean, I'm just like, Okay, they didn't even come up with this in Star Trek, man. Not even the board could stand up to this thing. <laughs> you know, I'm like, <laughs> you know, the Borg are always going around and saying, you will be assimilated. You, your culture will adapt to serve as us. And I'm like, oh, boy, there's Christianity for you. <laughs> Badly. You know, <laughs> I'm like, 
oh, okay, you haven't met the protomolecule yet. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know? You better do a flip and burn, Dan, because it's coming for you. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's just the characters are just so well written. I mean, there's so much depth to them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, back to the Orkheim here. See, see, those that are dictated by logic, such as honoring one's father and mother, and the prohibitions against theft, robbery, fraud, murder, and the like. Even if the Torah had not commanded these mitzvahs, it would have been logical to honor one's parents and refrain from such actions as robbery, etc. The mitzvahs that are categorized as Shimiyot are those mitzvahs that, although we would not have known them through uh, intuition alone, their reasons can be well understood. For example, the reason for the mitzvah of the Shabbos is because the creator ceased from his work of creation on that day. The mitzvahs to observe Yom Tov are to commemorate the miracles that were performed for us on those occasions. The prohibition against Avodah which demands that we not serve anything other than our God, is because he is the one who took us out of Egypt, just like I've been saying earlier. Hmm. You know, other... that's something that's missing from the foundation of Christianity is the redemption from Egypt. Because that, I mean, understanding really what that means, the redemption from Egypt, you know, like if we would have never left Egypt, we would have never got the Torah, we would have never, you know, been set free from sin, slavery, death, you know, it would have been assimilated into nothingness. Had we stayed in Egypt one more moment, we would have reached the 50th level of impurity. You know what the 50th level of impurity is? Les Newt which means mockery, which is the same thing Amalek used to attack us, the same thing Korak used to rebel against Moshe, the same thing Balaam uses to curse the people. This outright adamant, like, I don't care if Hashem gave you the Torah. Hashem doesn't exist. Creation is on my terms. Mockery can make you do that. So if you think about the fact of taking away the redemption from egypt you can literally undo the universe because it's just like we don't need a bible we don't need a torah we don't need genders we don't need holiness that's the 50th level of impurity side note mashiach can get you out of the 50th level of impurity (laughs) (laughs) anyway Uh, yeah yeah, and other mitzvahs like these. Now these are the revealed reasons for these mitzvahs. But there is no mitzvah that does not have, in addition to its revealed reason, hidden inner meanings as well. The hidden meanings were revealed to Moshe. Uh, uh, what? <laughs> is that in the Kaim? Did you just throw that in I there? just read it. I just That's- read it. That's cut and paste. (laughs) 
These the secrets were revealed to Moses. And are also revealed to any worthy person who has attained the acquisition of Torah. We can become worthy of this. The fact that I'm reading this to you and getting into the Ari should say something. Hashem makes you worthy, but you got to step up to the plate and hit that fastball. <laughs> yep, just swing the bat. Just just swing the bat. That's all you got to do. <laughs> watching the, I was watching the Bad News Bears, man. I, oh, I have not seen that movie in years. <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that is big. Oh. Yeah, I'll have I'll have to put that up in the group or on Facebook. <laughs> okay, see acquisition of the Torah by way of the forty-eight qualities that are taught in the teaching for the pious. I vote six five as ways to acquire the Torah. For when a person attains that level, the secrets of the Torah, which Hashem revealed to Moshe at Sinai, are then revealed to him by heaven. You have heavenly assistance when you attain the 48th level of pious piety. That's what the Orkayim is saying. And Moshe likewise revealed to the Jewish people all of his generation, the hidden secrets and the esoteric reasons for all the mitzvahs and the conceptual and spiritual foundations of every mitzvah in the Torah. Say again to me, oh, the Torah's done away with? <laughs> but when it came to the mitzvah before us, that of the paraduma. Hashem instructed Moshe to leave matters unexplained and to convey the mitzvah to the Jewish people as a hukah without giving them any reason for it. This is what the Torah is alerting us to by saying Hashem spoke to Moshe and to Aharon to say to the Jewish people, that is, what is the statement that Hashem commanded Moshe to, Moshe to say to them? It is, this is the decree of the Torah. Zot Hukat Torah. That Hashem has commanded to say. Looking at some gematriot for uh, 48. We got Yovel. We got oh. the that's the Jubilee. Because you know Yeshua says I, I'm here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolls up the scroll and does all that, right? Yeah. Um the word Chayil. Speaking of worthy, <laughs> the valor that you have to have. So, anyway, just among a few things about the 48, 
Yes, yeah, Hashem has commanded to say, meaning Moshe is to tell them that this mitzvah is the decree of the Torah and the meaning of a decree is not revealed. So has Hashem commanded me to say to you, according to this, it is as though the Torah had said, what Hashem has commanded me to say to you is, this is the decree of the Torah and thus you are not to be given any explanation for it. From the words that Moshe was to tell the Jewish people, though, you can derive that Moshe himself was told reasons for the details of the mitzvah, only that what Hashem instructed Moshe to say to the Jewish people was that the mitzvah is to be presented to them as a decree without any of its reasons. This way, the Jewish people would not demand for Moshe that he tell them the reason for the matter. For since Hashem had instructed him to convey it to them as a decree, they would not pursue Moshe to reveal the reason for it. With this explanation, the three questions we ask regarding the clause that Hashem commanded to say are resolved. And then he goes on with, uh, he explains the placement of the phrase, speak to the children of Israel. With this approach, the question of why Hashem did not place the statement, speak to the children of Israel, to say before the statement, this is the decree of the Torah. And I was, why does the, you know, the Zot Torah precede? Speak to the children of Israel. Yeah. Why? For the statement, this is the decree of, of the Torah that Hashem has commanded to say is not where the main instructions concerning the mitzvah of Paraduma begin, but it is a commandment of Hashem to Moshe concerning the way this mitzvah is to be presented. Wow. The way it's to be presented. Namely, that Moshe was to tell the Jewish people that Hashem had commanded him to transmit this mitzvah to them in the form of a decree. That's his presentation. Without giving any reason for it. Which is the whole reason Yeshua says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And you're just like, you want to break that down? It's like, no, that's, that's how it goes. Like, there's no motivating factors for doing the mitzvah besides Ahavah Hashem. Like you're you're enthralled with Hashem. Like this, I do it. Let's see, whereas the statement "Speak to the children of Israel" refers to the actual mitzvah, i.e., it introduces introduces Hashem's instructions to the Jewish people about the power of Duma. Thus, the phrase, speak to the children of Israel, is precisely placed right before the details of the mitzvah of the power of Duma. 
the verse then says, and they shall take to you, i.e. to Moshe, since it was Eleazar, not Moshe, who was to prepare the para aduma, verse 3, why did Hashem command the Jewish people to take the cow to Moshe? Orkayim explains this in light of the approach he set, set out above. Now, since the Jews might say as follows, why if, why if one fulfills a mitzvah without knowing its revealed reason and its inner meaning, the mitzvah is considered like a body without a soul? Wow. If we do not know the reasons, how can we properly fulfill the mitzvah of the power of Duma? Hashem therefore went on to say, speak to the children of Israel and they shall take to you a completely red cow. That is, Hashem was saying, they shall take the cow with the intention that they are performing the mitzvah in accordance with your knowledge and intentions about the matter, since you know the inner meaning of the matter and its wondrous attributes. This way, the mitzvah will be performed in a complete manner with the necessary actions and intentions. The actions will be provided by the Jewish people and the intentions by Moshe remaining. I don't know about you, but if there was ever a time I needed assistance with my intention, my Kavana, I'm pretty sure I would go for Moshe Rabbeinu. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> to, I uh, like, hook me up with that. Because, <laughs> you know, like, what, what kind of intent he must have had for everything that he did. Yeah, this is really great because it really does bring into play your intentions it shows the intent of the theologians of centuries past self-incrimination can I plead the fifth no <laughs> <laughs> because the you already spoke the evidence is overwhelming So, in other words, the, the statements made at the beginning of this rumination about the categorization of the mitzvot, the jurisdiction of the Messiah, based off of what we just read, what is the intention that's being presented by that? What are you giving birth to, so to speak? with your words that's too much man that is too much <laughs> oh my gosh you know it's you're bringing defilement is what you're really doing but by your words you'll be justified and by your words you'll be condemned it's not that which goes into a man that makes him unclean but that which comes out and what proceeds from the heart are Evil thoughts, adultery, murder, slander. See? Of the like, and the Shaul says in Galatians, of the like, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom. 
He's just See this? Re repeating the words of the master there. Yeah. Because this is the whole thing again. It's like, well, so what are you saying? I'm not saved. I'm, I don't have any salvation. It's like, you know, your words are your own judgment. You know, what's coming out of you is really telling you. You don't need me to tell you. <laughs> like Yeshua said, I didn't come to judge. Like, that's not my role. You're going to judge yourself. So we have to be careful what we think about when we do the mitzvah. Because we all know, or we should all know, uh, newsflash, if you do the mitzvah without any kind of intent, you know, you just kind of fly through stuff. Basically, it, it's as if you haven't done it. You know, um, the other Shlomo, <laughs> shouts out to Shlomo from <laughs> Shlomo Ben Hillel. Uh, he was given a drosh on this past Shabbat, and he was talking about the mikvah. Did you know if you go into the mikvah with no intent, you're basically just taking a bath, That's... dipping in a pool of water. You're not going to bring any kind of cleansing and purification to yourself if you don't have the intention that it takes to go into the mikvah. Yep. So he brought that down. I thought that was absolutely ridiculous. But, I mean, it's just kind of like, dude, it's, it's, this is serious. So, I mean, like, well, if you think about it in the context of the Mishkan in the, in the wilderness, there are the two temples, you know, you want to bring your offering, but if you're a Kavana, for example, it's not for the sake of heaven. You just killed an innocent creature. You, you better not approach, period. Because you basically would be taking your life into your hands. They'd wow. have an Abihu. Wow. <laughs> crazy part is they had intent it was just the wrong one <laughs> wrong kind of intent zealousness is no substitute for obedience i feel like you've said that before <laughs> mm -hmm. um, light okay. is not the absence of darkness light reveals flaws I mean, these where you start connecting all the illuminations and you begin to see just how yeah. interlaced they are. Why? Because it, all the commandments are interconnected. Why? Because they're, they're a unity of purpose. You know, you if you... Yeah, we're striving to understand each one. You know, we, we have to take it one at a time, you know. Like one aspect of Shabbat at a time, for example, you know, as we keep improving the way that we, you know, keep improving the way that we're doing it to bring more holiness, you know, Kedusha into the moment. Mm -hmm. We're really sanctifying time. Dafe Tang. You know, I thought about that today. I was in Rabbi Chugman's class for the parasha of um, Balak. 
he was talking about the moment in time that Belam knew where Shem is angry. It's like a fraction of a second. And Rabbi just decides to go into this whole drop on quantum physics and time. And I'm like, dude, what? <laughs> what just happened? It was amazing. But it, it, I thought about what we talked about. You know, how Jerusalem is the sanctification of the space. You know, Shabbat is for time. Mashiach is for the soul. Like the centralized points is just, it's wow. <laughs> well, yeah, I like the book, The Sabbath, you know, Abraham Joshua Heschel. We are enamored by the things of space, by the grandeur of the things of space. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, ancient Romans didn't believe in an afterlife necessarily. Hmm. They were more... This is why they built such grandiose structures. Uh, Colosseum, the arches... Our architecture is still influenced by Roman architecture. All our buildings. Look at the Capitol building in D.C. Yeah. That's entirely Roman. Any, any city capital, you look and you <laughs> see it. It's the grandeur of the things of space. This is a big holdover from... This guy really just went there. He just said, yeah, you know, the Capitol building... <laughs> goodness you know it's transitory yeah i you 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 can't admit though it is breathtaking well yeah and i'm not taking away from that of course or if you go well, to rushmore for example or the grand canyon yeah because i'm just thinking to esteem materiality so much that you don't think there's an afterlife i mean you have to be like on it to make something so grandiose. <laughs> like you're trying to outdo the alum haba. Like, first of all, good luck with that. Yeah, that's the thing. Yeah. But yeah, the intention of this being so breathtaking, you're just like, oh wow, that's crazy. Somebody built this, you know. It's like, yeah, but that's nothing compared to the alum haba. Or you but could put it in a modern context. I mean, look at our Sports stadiums. Look how much admir admiration we give these baseball teams, these football teams, hockey, all that stuff. Yeah. But then you look at how these athletes are behaving. <laughs> Come on, man. Right? Good. You know, getting political. You know, a really hard one for me, technology. There was a, you know, Rabbi Alona Naba, Shlita, may he live and be well. This guy <laughs> brought up the fact that, you know, there's a whole thing of like the second wilderness uh, test that we'll have to go through, you know, in time to come. It's like, okay, it's time, it's time for us to go. It's time for us to leave exile. It's like, will there be Wi-Fi where we're going? <laughs> he he loves he I I love it when he brought that up. Anyway, that was a while back, but that that stuck with me because 
I'm getting so like just amazed by what we're allowed to be able to do all these advances in technology, you know, like the cell phones and the tablets and the Bluetooth and um, AirDrop. Let me just do AirDrop. Goodness, for iPhone people, you push this little button and it's like, yeah, there you go. You can have whatever I've been looking at on my phone. It's just like, wait, what? You know, Apple TV stuff. Anyway, those kinds of crazy things are nothing compared to the Alhamdulillah. So like when it is time for us to leave exile and that day is coming, may it be soon. Like we can literally feel free to drop everything and just go because the provision that's ahead of us is insane. Like we, I don't even think we can fathom it. So, I mean, this is a really big one for me, like to, uh, to be practicing on, to, to be like, yeah, yeah, Wi-Fi, yeah, 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 you know, Zoom, all this kind of stuff. It's like, yeah, that's nothing compared to what Hashem has. This is a reflection. Yeah, it's, they all, well, I've said it, I've said it in a previous uh, podcast, the Torah is the world to come. It describes it. Yeah. You know, but certain aspects, what we're talking about here is the Hukim, which are not explained, as I just read from the Orkaim. Mm. You know, I'm not giving you an explanation, so this is what you're going to tell the B'nai Israel, Probably because, and I'm, again, hey, I'm just guessing because even Solomon couldn't explain this one. Right. About the red heifer. Here's Shlomo quoting Shlomo. <laughs> <laughs> Shameless advertising. <laughs> uh, <laughs> The Hulk, perhaps it is so deeply mystical that it requires a, someone, even Moshe, who had the clearest revelation of Hashem, was not given the details. That should say something about the depth of the mystical nature of this particular Hulk, of the power of Duma. Yeah. How does it make one pure? You probably find yourself asking, how does that happen? You're not told why. And you're outside the temple when it's getting prepared. Yep. That's the, see, okay, that's another good point. It doesn't, it says outside the camp, if I remember right how it's phrased in the Hebrew. Meaning you're not just outside the courtyard <laughs> of the tabernacle. You're not just okay. outside where the Levites encircle the tabernacle. Oh my goodness. Or you're not just outside where the tribes are arranged around the tribes of Levi. But it's you are outside the farthest perimeter of the camp. 
Man, there's some Ten of Moses stuff right here. Some Hebrews chapter 13. Let's go to him outside the camp kind of stuff. Yeah, you know, it's... He says, okay, so continuing with it, it can be understood that who came are the commandments that reflect the world to come, whereas the Mishpatim reflect this present world. For the lover of God, we reveal his glory when we live his commandments. His in our daily lives between these two extremes of reality, it's our duty to obey Hashem, not only in the things we understand, the Mishpatim, but also in the things we do not understand, the Hokim, and everything in between the mitzvot. Okay, Numbers 19.3, the verse you were just thinking of when you said, I think it was, I'm pretty sure it's outside the camp. Well, 19.3, there it is. Hot Vehotzi. And you shall bring out, which, by the way, is the same words used for the Exodus. Hotze. Um, Ota el mikutz lamachane. You shall deliver it outside. You shall exodus it outside the camp. Like outside the clouds of glory kind of thing. So anyway, that that's where Mashiach was offered up. <laughs> Outside the camp. <laughs> that's where we have to go. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay. Um, so, more with the Orkayim. I completely read cow, which is without blemish and upon which a yoke has not come. Orkayim explains the significance of the Paraduma's unique requirements. I have observed that all the properties of the Paraduma allude to the spiritual forces associated with the Neem. Literally, judgments. You're reading footnotes. Yep. Footnote 31 in general sense. This term refers to the strict judgment that results in punishment for sins. Ugh. See Zohar volume 3, 180B, see also Ramban to the verse. Could get him out. <laughs> Dude, Yeshua died for our sins. Literally, you just read that? <laughs> uh-huh. He took on the punishment that was rightfully ours. Ah. <sighs> Did this, uh, yeah. <laughs> the cow must be red because this color symbolizes the intensification of the forces associated with the name. So strong are these forces of judgment that the cow must be completely red without black hairs. So did the sages of blessed memory say in Parah 2.5 that even two black hairs disqualify the cow. 
and not only do its hairs need to be red, but even its horns and hoofs need to be red. Whoa. <laughs> and not only do its hairs need to be red, but yeah, even its horns and hoofs need to be red. But if they are black, and needless to say, if they are white, they disqualify the cow. Note 33. Black can be considered halakhically closer to red in certain instances. If even black horns and hoofs disqualify the cow, surely white horns and hoofs disqualify it. Uh, Ner Lamor, uh, Lakem Shamaim to the Mishnah. Do you ever think about Yeshua looking completely red when he was offered up? You know what Luke says when he was in the garden praying, right? The amount of stress that he was under. Mm-hmm. He says, great drops of blood. And also Isaiah says, Yeshua 53 says that his visage was so marred that he was unrecognizable. And then consider that he was uh, whipped with a Roman flail. Also beaten. Do you have any idea how painful the flail is? It's little squares on the whip with little hooks in them. These things grab flesh and tear it off. This is the cruelty of Rome. The cruelty of Esau. Like field dressing an animal and, and hunting terminology. Yeah. Filleting the skin. Oh my goodness, like Rabbi Akiva? Yes. When he was doing the Shema and they were peeling his skin off? They burned him with a Torah scroll. One of his Talmud asked, Master, what do you see? And he says, I see the letters ascending, the Shamayim. Mm, 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 mm. You know, it's, I mean, what, we're offering opinions here. Even when I'm reading from the Orkaim, it's an opinion, it's a perspective. Yeah, which it's sourced. This is. <laughs> purely mystical which is why it's not explained it's so deep in mystic in mysticism that it can't be explained by nobody not even moshe that you know that says a lot <laughs> about the kabbalah of this thing yeah most trusted of his household he doesn't see through a glass dimly. He can. He literally speaks oh. so much that he can say, Hashem said this. Like, true story. Like, that's Moshe. He's like, he just quoted Shaul. Ephesians. Yeah. Where we see through a glass darkly. For that's who can so comprehend the breadth, the width, and the height of his wisdom? Yeah. Which, by the yeah. way, the Zohar says, see, see Corinthians for more explanations about seeing through the glass dimly. 
Zohar Pritzker says that. Really? Yep. Oh, I guess I'll have to get that. <laughs> you know what? I'll send you a screenshot with the help of Hashem. Blee Nader. I'll send wow. you a screenshot. That's yeah, I highlighted it. I was just like, wait, what? He <laughs> <laughs> got you shaking your head going, what? <laughs> yeah, out of all the things that you could quote from Paul, like the Zohar is like, yeah, Corinthians. You go there. <laughs> the guy you say that started a whole new religion. <laughs> like even Christians think, well, the first letter to Corinthians is not actually the first letter to Corinthians. Like who knows how many letters Paul actually wrote to them. We only have two of them. So when we say first Corinthians, it doesn't literally mean that was the first time he wrote to them. That could very well be, yeah. But then <laughs> That's again Christian think... commentary saying that. <laughs> but then again, I think about the end of John's gospel when he says if we were to record everything that Yeshua did, I suppose that the entire world could not contain all that he did. Right. You know, it's <laughs> okay. A further sign of the, the name associated with the cow is that which the Torah states that it must be one upon which a yoke has not come because a yoke would sweeten, soften the denim. In accordance with the inner meaning of the sage's statement in Barakote 5a that afflictions, which are a type of yoke, purge all a person's sins, which are related to the forces associated with the name. The burning of the cow in fire, which is mentioned below in verse 5, also represents the forces associated with the name because fire represents the intensification of these forces. And when all of these things that symbolize that the forces associated with the name come together in the ashes of the cow, they are able to banish the tuma that clings to a person from contact with a corpse because that tuma too is nothing more than an evil strap of punishment emanating from the afflictions that come from judgment okay orkheim uses the same kabbalistic approach to explain yet another of the paradumas requirements I saw a law in the Sifre Zuta to our verse, and Rambam records it. The Rambam records it as a halakha in the first chapter of Hilko Para Aduma, namely that when acquiring a cow for the Para Aduma, we may not purchase a calf and raise it until it is a cow. For it says, and they shall take to you a completely red cow. It doesn't use the word eggle. It uses the word para. 
And what's interesting about the word par, you know, par means bowl also, but you have the hay at the end of this word. And I'm trying to get in my head the Kabbalah of the four letter name because you have the yod and you have the hay. The hay of the yod of Hokma of Abba. The wisdom. Because I was reading previously from the Orkayim that, you know, the inner meanings of the Torah are granted to those who achieve the 48th level of piety. Right. So, <laughs> because of the nature of the red heifer, and again, I'm just offering my take on it, putting these things together, trying to form a, a picture, if you will, that the Tuma is the affliction, as the Orkaim says, which needs to be removed. So because the ashes of the heifer bring atonement, so to speak, and release one from this affliction, because Yeshayahu also says that Yeshua was afflicted. He was pierced for our transgression of Torah. You know, the chastisement of our peace was upon him. You know, we esteemed him not smitten and stricken of God. So forth. You know, he became Tuma for us. He took on the Deneen, the judgments. And I'm thinking that the Gematria for Para being 285, which is the equivalent of the dimensions of judgment, it would seem that Yeshua took on all those dimensions of those of judgments in the spiritual realm. Right. For us. Um And notice when Yeshua was offered, he was offered up as a man, just like Yitzhak was at the, the Akeda. Mm -hmm. You know, I was mistakenly understood that Isaac, you know, in Christian circles, that he was just a kid. He was in his 30s. As a matter of fact, I think he was, was he? 30s. Yeshua was in his 30s, too. Yeah, Yeshua was 33. Yitzhak was 37. Oh, Lamed Vav Zedekin. See, yeah, completely red cow indicated it must be a cow and not a calf, even when it is taken, i.e. purchased. The quote ends here. According to what we have said, that all the details of the power of Duma are associated with Aspects of judgment, there is a hidden reason for this matter as well. For the term para, cow yields a numerical value of 285, which is known to be the number of dimensions of denim, as those who are well versed in Kabbalah know. 
Hashem therefore commanded the Jewish people to purchase an animal at a stage when its numeric value equals the number that represents the idea the cow alluded to. But if they were to buy a calf, they would be buying something that does not yet have the numeric value that we acquire, require. And even though they would raise the calf until it was old enough to be called a cow before preparing it, nevertheless, that would not be enough because Hashem was particular about the moment of purchase as well so that they would buy something that already represents the idea that Cal alludes to, namely the 285 aspects of Denim. Yeah, uh, Balaam was said to be about 33 when he was killed. So, obviously, interesting connection to one who was a sorcerer who died around that age. But it's interesting, too, because it's uh, the Ramban that brings up the offerings to the goat demons in uh, uh, Parsha Harimot, the whole 33 verses apart from each other about the Yazazel offering. So that no longer will you offer offerings to the demons anymore. Wow, the mnemonic pointing to when Yeshua was offered up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was just reading a footnote here, uh, footnote 39. Kabbalah is often referred to as uh, hen, beauty, with hen serving as an acronym for Pokemon Nistar, hidden wisdom. The idea that the number 285 is related to the forces associated with the name is found in Likute Torah, Avkayim Vital. To the parsha, and you have Likute Torah, don't you? Yeah. Let's see, because I don't. I think I remember reading something about that. I, I basically blue screened myself <laughs> between Kukat <laughs> uh, and Balak on uh, Likute Torah, so. Because it's just like this unending stream of like death. But to your point about not purchasing a calf, but you purchase the para, you know, this is why Yeshua was offered up at the age that he was offered up because he wasn't going to be offered up as a child. He was going to be offered up at the prime moment, you know, which just kind of makes you think of how old Adam and Hava were you know when we ate from the tree but uh parsha who cut oh yeah this was the suffering one 
seeing the good and suffering and turning it to good. Okay, I'm not seeing the Deneen passage. It's that one. The other part about the Lakute Torah is it's so in-depth that you can, depending on what edition you have and what uh, medium you use, because not all of Lakute Torah has been translated into English. So sometimes you can't really get everything. So, yeah, that's definitely what's going on here. Because, yeah, for Parsha Hukat, I only get something about uh, the good that happens with suffering and how you can overturn um, the basically your suffering can bring about goodness. So they don't go into the judgment parts in this. Got a big goose egg over here, bro. <laughs> yeah. Well, we have the three verses quoted here from Psalm 119. I have inclined my heart to perform your hukim statutes forever to the very end. Psalm 119.54. And then, Hashem, I hope for your salvation and I do your mitzvot. Psalm 119, 166. I like the one that precedes that verse. 119, 165. Uh, Great peace have they that love your uh, mitzvot. There's no occasion of stumbling in them. Amen. The entirety of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous mishpat endures forever. 119, 60. There's another one. We must bring together this present world and the world to come. You do that by going through the door. <laughs> uh, I am the good shepherd. Mm-hmm. Is that the end of the rumination? Yep. And since I wow. thought of Yochanan 10, yes, indeed, I tell you, the person who doesn't enter the sheep pen through the door but climbs in some other way is a thief and a robber. Back to the killer. Back to death. But the one who goes in through the gate is the sheep's own shepherd. This is the one the gatekeeper admits. Open for me the gates of righteousness. 
and the sheep hear his voice. He calls to his own sheep, each one by name, and leads them out. After taking all out all that are his own, he goes on ahead of them. And the sheep follow him because they recognize his voice. So this is talking about the one who spoke from Sinai. Mm-hmm. They never follow a stranger. Oh, man. But will run away from him because strangers' voices are unfamiliar to them. Like someone who does not speak words of Torah. Yeah, that's the beauty of this rumination is that's the voice of the stranger speaking about all these different uh, corruptions and twisting of the Torah, you know. And the beautiful thing, too, that Hashem's sheep are going to follow him. Ultimately, his sheep are going to be revealed. You know, that's the whole uh, aspect of Mashiach ben Yosef until the final redemption to gather in the lost sheep of Israel. You know, Yeshua said that. I'm, I'm here for the lost sheep. Yep. Absolutely. It's the amazing part, you know, just... They, you know, I, pretty, I, you know, Hashem has brought us to the place where we hear His voice, and we don't listen to any voice that tries to lure us away. I mean, from His loving instructions. Again, you know, if He called, would you know His voice? That's so amazing. That's another rumination. This is rich stuff, bro. I'm, I'm really glad you do this because, you know, like I said before, I was just telling somebody today, actually, I was like, yeah, so this is a guy named Shlomo, you know, he, he drops these ruminations every week and it's in the middle of like hundreds, literally, of posts and insights on the parasha, you know, you get Benish Chai, you get Chasim Sofer, you get Rambam, you get Rashi, you get Bahaturim, you get Ari's all, you know, and then you drop in a rumination and then it's like, that's the rumination for the week. And then it's back to all that, you know, getting dropped. And I'm like, can we just take a second, you know, on this rumination thing? You know, and I was like, I was like, dude, you got to do a podcast. And you're like, okay, if you do it with me. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I was telling somebody that and I was like, yeah, so we, you know, take a few hours and just sit down and we just ruminate, you know. A few hours <laughs> yeah so anyway I, again i just i think it's really cool and especially for this one this has been a heavy one and it's kind of been uncomfortable at moments but um this is the kind of thing though like we we have to be sheep that hear the voice of our our master and it's not for the faint of heart no. as one one of our former avengers told me you know, not a lot of people could be Talmudim of Yeshua. The things that he he requires of us. You know, like, let me go bury my father. It's like, no, let the dead bury the dead. 
that's my dad you're talking about you know happy father's day to you you know kind of thing <laughs> or oh, any man that puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the yeah team. i mean this is intense bro you know i was like okay i respect that cole how about <laughs> yeah i mean it's It's forming, you know, I, I had this tapestry in my head because, you know, I, I read these, I come back to these every year, but as we continue these, we'll be coming to other ones as we, we begin the, the Torah cycle all over again. Yeah. And as we continue to do them, we'll unravel more, we'll reveal more. Because not just these ruminations, but also, you know, his commentary is really good too. Yeah. Because that's what really helped me out. Get a, you know, a firm understanding of, of, of Torah, you know, because he does get into it, you know, you know, he, um, Yeah, he gets into it, you know, who God is often translated statute or ordinance. Uh, neither word fully explains the Hebrew word. These seemingly legal words are treated with much disrespect and bias in our English versions. For a very obvious reason, the modern man does not like anyone telling him what to do, even if the anyone is the almighty. How confused the modern man is. And he, this is an interesting quote too. History is a voice forever sounding across the centuries. The laws of right and wrong. Opinions alter, manners change, creeds rise and fall, but the moral law is written on the tablets of eternity. James A. Farouk. Tablets of eternity. Someone gets it, at least. Huh? Or, or at least he appears to. You know, I just... He could be a theologian. You know, I don't know. But it's a, it's a good quote. Heavens and earth will pass away, but not my word. Eternity is a long time. Okay, let's be honest. It's forever. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Well, that is what we say when we talk about eternal things like eternal life. That's right. And everlasting judgment. Does it really mean forever when the Bible says forever? Some, if they're honest, may have to respond. It depends. I just don't know your reasoning, what a person is thinking when they say something like that, you know? Or eternity is only within the context in which it's presented. I mean, I quote John, I quote John 17 too. This is eternal life to know you, the only true God. Mm-hmm. That's eternal life. He just defined it. 
our closing bracha, what does it say? Who has implanted eternal life within us? In our midst? Yeah. Like we literally say that in our bracha. So. Or the prayer after study in the Talmud. Yeah. I run, they run. They run to mischief. I run to the life of the world to come. <laughs> That's talking about eternal life. I mean, it's, you know, how, how can you miss that? But then again, camouflage, translation traditions, you know, it's, that's the yeah. thing. You have to really just pull away that veneer. Yeah. But you got to be willing to do that. You, you got to be in a place where you're willing to question. Because if you're not questioning, you're not going to get any answers. If you if you're just going to take your pastor's word for it, then you're as stuck as he is. I I thank Hashem. I was not that kind of layperson, you know, when I was in the church because I always, I did study on my yeah. own. Yeah, me too. You know, I didn't take things at face value like I saw so many other congregants do you know because I was asking questions of them yeah but for the most part I was just getting theological answers they're just quoting the theologians they're just quoting the uh, professors, professors at their seminaries that they went to but not one time did I ever hear them go to the Torah not one time. And we both know the reason for that. Yep. You know, you've your foundation is on sand. It's not on the rock. You know, that is Mashiach, which, you know, Shaul says in Corinthians, they all drank from that rock, and that rock was Mashiach. I mean. You know, it's just, you know, I still stand in amazement at times, you know, how I've been blessed to know what I know, you know, but only, but then again, I realize it comes through labor. Yes, it does. You know, <laughs> and a willingness to be honest with yourself that, you know, hey, you know, what I was told, it doesn't line up, you know. What I understood previously was incorrect. That takes a lot of spiritual maturity to be willing to say that. Especially if you call yourself a, a Talmud of the master. Because he says, you know, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Yeah. He, do you realize the depth of that statement? I mean, it's yeah. I was just I was just connecting the dots because Kabbalat Ol is about accepting the yoke of the kingdom upon yourself, uh, and then learning of him because he says Moses wrote about me, 
beginning with Moses, he taught he taught about himself to those who were on the road to Emmaus. You know, so in other words, in order for you to really grasp Mashiach, you have to be at a place of Kabbalat old, like unconditionally accepting the yoke of the Torah upon yourself. You know, so I think about a lot of people who don't know Yeshua, but they know Yeshua because of the free will acceptance of the Torah that they've really brought up on themselves. Like a lot more Jewish people know Yeshua than we think because of the, the crazy yoke that they've accepted upon themselves. Yeah. I, because week in and week out, we're learning of Yeshua. Con, yeah, constantly, you know. I mean, are we believing on the Yeshua that the scriptures tell us about? Or are we believing on him based on what someone else is telling us? Yeah. Got to pick. Because the scriptures testify about him. Because he even says it, search the scriptures. Or he that believes on me as the scripture says, out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Yeah, which all is the rock. It's the Selah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. Um, that was the complaint about water, by the way. Yeah. Meribah. Yeah, that's another thing. That's another significant event in this Parsha. Is what I just read from the Arizal, you know. He's, he, man, he was supposed to speak to the rock. Again, your words. Baruch Sheamar, blessed is he who spoke. Baruch Sheamar. Goodness. That one just always pops in my head when it comes to speech. You know why? <laughs> it's because his word doesn't return void. Yep. But it's different with us, though, because our words can either bring life or they can bring death. You know, it's, you know, I look at the history, you know, the last 1900 years and a lot of things that have been said by the church, you know, it's, I don't think they realize the depth of what they've brought upon themselves. Mm. You know, but thankfully, you know, people like you and I and everyone else in the in the group, you know, yeah. coming to that realization, you know, that we got to really be careful. We got to watch ourselves, you know, because it takes a lot of musar, man, discipline to keep that tongue bridled, you know. It's, mm -hmm. it's so easy. I, you know, I was reading Torah Wellsprings prior to this uh, last Shabbat. Um, and I remember that uh, 
yeah, the Yetzer Hurrah works overtime to get a couple to argue, to fight, to accuse. You know, then the Citra, you know, the Satan, he works overtime too, playing on the Yetzer Hurrah, you know. And I, yeah. and I think of it, you know, applying that to what has happened over the last 1900 years, and they've just so given themselves over to the, to the Yetzer Hurrah. And the Satan in that regard. Moror face. Dude, that's intense. Giving yourself over to the Yatahara. You know. <laughs> wow. But you know, that's just another reason why you and I are here is so that we could so that they could see. Because like you said, we don't need to speak, we're just, just living it, you know. Exactly. You know, so yeah, it's, <laughs> you always have to keep that stuff in mind. <laughs> um, yeah, we know the Taurus is revealed will. You know, there's, there's no mystery there. Um, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grab the Dessler because I'm really, I always like to grab him. Um, because I remember last time I read him, uh, <laughs> made it back <laughs> did the recorder stop or did it keep going <laughs> it's, st it's still going thankfully <laughs> okay because I was going to my Braca and all of a sudden my phone was just like eh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I went to pick up this Dessler that's what happened Okay, I'm not going to touch my phone. I'm going to let you do that. <laughs> you just let me know when you're done so my phone doesn't freak out anymore because I was like, oh, no. <laughs> I was getting ready to say the closing Braca anyway, so. <laughs> okay. I don't know. If you've already started reading, if you can go ahead and continue, that that's totally fine. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Oh, okay. Get yourself a teacher. 
Mm. A person is surrounded by many teachers. Everything that happens to him, everything that his senses perceive is sent so that he can learn from it. A person can learn about the greatness of God, his power, and his love from all that surrounds him. So everything, everything without exception, is like a Rebbe for a person. That is what is meant by the words, God owns everything. Kone hakol. The meaning is that we have to hand over everything to him to realize that his, king, his kingdom extends over everything. In other words, to learn from everything the immensity of his kingship. Sometimes what a person may not be able to learn for himself, for himself from his environment requires a living rabbi to do this for him. His rabbi should be a great man whose eyes see the world in its true perspective. But what the rabbi cannot see is certainly lost to the pupil. What the rabbi sees. In Parashah Hukat, we find the song Israel sang about the well that accompanied them on their desert wanderings. The song begins, then Israel sang this song. This is in contrast with the song of the Red Sea, which begins that Moshe and the children of Israel sang this song to God. The Midrash comments, then Israel sang. Why is Moshe not mentioned? Because he was punished in a connection. He was punished in connection with water. A person cannot praise his own executioner. And why is God's name not mentioned? This can be likened to the high official who made a banquet for the king. The king asked him, is my friend going to be there? No, the official replied. If my friend is not there, said the king, then I also will not be there. At the Red Sea, Moshe saw God's wonderful loving kindness from his own elevated perspective. Through him, Israel was also elevated and thus able to sing their song to God. The clarity of their vision was such that they saw God's loving acts through creation. As the rabbis say, even a maidservant saw at the sea more than Yehezkel and all his prophets. But at the end, but at the well, they failed to reach this elevated decree, degree of clarity because Moshe, their teacher, could not achieve it. With all his greatness, he was unable to see God's loving kindness with absolute clarity on that occasion because he had suffered from the severity of Midat Hadin in that every connection, in that very connection. If my friend is not there, I will not be there. Since Moshe could not achieve this, Israel also lacked the ability to see God in the miracle with absolute clarity. Seeing the rabbi. A person can also learn from observing his rabbi if he has a comprehensive appreciation of his rabbi, seeing his purity of heart, his devotion and attachment to spiritual values. This can have a great effect on the people's own way of looking at the world. 
But what if the pupil is not serious about his own service of God? What if his fear of God is nothing but lip service? As Yeshia says, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Their fear of me is like a command of human beings learned by a habit. What is God's response? The wisdom of their wise men shall be lost. The pupil will lose his rabbi. But we know that punishment is for rectifying the wrong. How is losing his rabbi going to help him? One would think that the opposite is the case. But maybe the pupil has been relying on his rabbi too much. Maybe the loss of his rabbi will challenge him to draw upon his own inward spiritual resources. The loss of his rabbi may act as the necessary shock, the overwhelming stimulus that he needed to begin his own spiritual ascent. Loss of the rabbi. In Parsha Hukat, Israel is attacked by the Canaanites of Arad in the Negev and the Amalekites in, the Amalekites in disguise. Israel fights back, defeats them, and destroys their cities. They named the place Horma, destruction. The point of naming the place after a major event that occurs there is to preserve the spiritual effect of that event so that its positive influence will not be lost. So it is with one's rabbi. One must fix the lessons one has learned from his rabbi in his mind and heart so that their influence never fades. It is certainly important for the pupil to recognize the greatness of his rabbi. Unless he does, he will never learn from the him the spiritual truths on which, though, on which to base his life. Get yourself a teacher is the title of this essay, literally, Make Yourself a Teacher. If he harbors the slightest doubt about his rabbi, he will never learn from him. In the episode where Moshe struck the rock, which we referred to briefly above, at one point Moshe says to the people, listen, you rebellious ones, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? This seems to imply that there was some doubt about which was the correct rock. And indeed, Rashi explains that when Moshe and Aharon came to speak to the rock, it went away and they spoke to another rock. That rock gave no water, so Moshe decided to hit it instead. At that point, the original rock returned and they hit it, and it eventually gave its water. We may wonder what this is supposed to teach us. The Vilna Gaon explains that Moshe was in some doubt about whether he was only meant to speak to the rock. The rock symbolized the stony heart of Israel. And Moshe believed that when dealing with the Yetzer Hara, words are insufficient. A slave cannot be disciplined by words. Or perhaps Israel was on the level of children for whom words are sufficient. Since Moshe was in doubt which lesson was to be derived, the rock disappeared. However, once he was clear about the lesson that could be derived from striking the rock, it returned. This teaches us that one can only learn from someone or something one is sure about. As we said above, if one 
entertains any doubt about his rabbi, that his person, that this person ceases to be his rabbi, and he can no longer learn from him. And since all Israel lost the lesson they should have learned from Moshe, Moshe speaking to the rock, they lost a, another great lesson as well. One of the consequences of Moshe's doubt was that no one knew his burial place. Hence, all Israel forfeited the great lessons which could have been learned had we been able to stand at the grave of Moshe, the man of God. To sum up, there are many factors that can disrupt our learning. Therefore, we have to be very careful to preserve our relationship with our rabbi and similarly to nurture all the opportunities for learning that we are offered. Wow. So now I see you on my phone. Skidst out. <laughs> <laughs> and I just have to say, um, as far as the synagogue, I, I, we have now uh, that we attend, it's called Magi Shenu. Shameless plug. Uh, that's, that's a message for us. Like we, we definitely need to hear that. We, we did have a rabbi and there was a lot of doubt that was cast in there. And uh, obviously this is why we no longer have a rabbi, you know, and a lot of people want a rabbi, you know, I think it's good that we do have one because, you know, having that teacher, but in the meantime, understanding we have to become a teacher. You know, we have to have the, the reserves of what we're learning. You know, a lot of stepping up needs to happen. One of the main reasons why, you know, and not to really put a lot of that information out there, but because there's plenty already without me having to say anything. But um, one of the reasons why we don't have the rabbi we used to have is because we did. We did. We got way too comfortable you know, and we weren't allowing the things that we could learn for ourselves, you know, be in the forefront. You're, you're a much stronger student uh, with your rabbi when you can learn for yourself and then have him, you know, be your face-to-face -face of accountability, you know, and so on and so forth. So anyway, I always really appreciate when you bring that down because I keep thinking about last rumination where you brought up Rabbi Dessler and I'm like, oh, can you repeat that? <laughs> <laughs> but then I'm like, oh, yeah, I can just go back to the video and play it again. So anyway, just a very, uh, very much needed message for us. Well, you what know? I'll do is I'll, uh, I'll, I'll send it to you on Telegram. Because he does have some a lot of great musar. Burgesham. Well, I appreciate that. You know, but yeah, so to Magin Yashenu, whoever from uh, there listens to the rumination, just be encouraged, you know. Yeah, don't be give okay. up. Don't give up. Don't, don't be okay. <laughs> you know, like it says in the like the sages say, you know, get a hot air, get wisdom. Mm-hmm. That's right. You know, be accountable to one another. You know, don't um, forsake the assembling of yourselves as the manner of some is. As you see the day approaching. You know, but uh, provoke one another to good works. 
Amen. Because that's where we're created for good works. We're, we're his workmanship. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, when I read from here, you know, yeah, don't be afraid to stop me if you hear something that really just uh, stands out to you, you know, because you did last week. <laughs> I know. That's what I'm even, saying. even though I said, oh, there's just a little bit left, you know. <laughs> yep. No, um, I just, uh, we definitely needed to soak that one in. So thank you for bringing that up because I didn't even think or wonder if there was anything on Hukat that would be something we could share and tie in. So. But, yeah, but anyway, our, yeah, just for the recording, you know, I'll just hold it up. I strongly recommend this. Um, yeah. he, he he blends Musar so nicely with the parasha. Um, it's available at uh, Feldheim. At Feldheim.com. I just took a screenshot. <laughs> so, yeah. All right. Anything else before I do the closing, Brock? <laughs> Um, because I'm like I'm not gonna touch my phone. <laughs> okay, the prayer after study. <laughs> okay, I thank you, O Hashem, my God, that you have established my portion with those who dwell in the study hall, and you have not established my portion with idlers. For I rise early, and they arise early. I rise early for words of Torah. And they rise early for idle words. I toil and they toil. I toil and receive reward. And they toil and do not receive reward. I run and they run. I run to the life of the world to come. And they run to the pit of destruction. As it is written. And you, O God, you will lower them into the well of destruction. Men of bloodshed and deceit shall not live out half their days. But as for me, I will trust in you. Amen. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu menakalam asher brachar or slika. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu menakalam asher natan lanu torat emet vechaye olam nata betochenu. Baruch atah Adonai notain ha Torah. Amen.